This week on Punch Mountain, 12 criminals are sent on a mission where they won't all make it back alive. But that's fine by us because we only like two or three of them anyway. Throw out that stubble because we're watching The Dirty Dozen. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined as always by the dirty dude himself, uh, your podcast lion, Mr. David Hada. David, good to see you. What's up, Mr. Dozen? And I won't tell the people why we call you Mr. Dozen, but it has to do with donuts. That's right. I'm doing all right. How, how are you, Mac? I uh, I eat a, they call it a, a Blaker's Dozen. It's uh, <laughs> a solid 23 donuts. Uh, I, I put them away every time. I find myself doing this a lot, and I, I never actually express it because it'll sound like I'm being condescending. But in that moment, I was like, Mac, you're so clever. I don't want you to think I'm talking down to you. I thought that was genuinely clever. <laughs> Wait, which part? The Blakers does Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was fake. I came up with that. <laughs> That's not a real thing. I don't eat 23 donuts in one sitting on many an occasion. I, I am a little stressed tonight, David, and just now I was like, five cookies. That'll make it feel better. <laughs> Guess what it did? Oh. I heard that people call this thing, it's like stress eating, and I was like, oh, what a great idea. And apparently people think it's bad? No, that I can't stress this enough. Stress eating is the way to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. Oh, that's why it's called that. Okay. Put it in bold and underline it. You're feeling <laughs> bad? Eat your feelings. We're speaking of eating your feelings and all this dozen talk, it's because we watched the the Dirty Dozen. That, that's a movie. That's right, the classic action classic, <laughs> the classic action film, The Dirty Dozen. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, yeah, what are your opening thoughts on this one, Mac? Uh, it's a great movie. I'd seen like parts of it, I think, on TV before, and I thought I remembered most of it. I guess I've seen a lot more movies between now and then because I did not remember how deep this cast is. David, we're talking about uh, Lee Marvin, of course, Charles Bronson. Elisa Wallace, but I, I was not familiar at all with John Cassavetes, I guess, the first time I saw this. And then, you know, watching it this time, I think I said out loud, Cassavetes? Like, if you remember when you suggested this movie, I was like, all oh, right, right, we should, um, maybe let's watch the Denzel Washington Chris Pratt remake. And you're like, Mac, are you thinking of The Magnificent Seven? And then I said no, and I just, I smashed up a room. I was just so embarrassed that I definitely was thinking of that movie. Well, there was a bit of a cold sweat for me, because I was like, Oh, no. Did they make a remake of The Dirty Dozen? Oh, no. Does it star Chris Pratt and Denzel Washington? And, man, the relief that washed over me. When not only was that not true, but I didn't have to watch it. That uh, that was a gift, Mac. You you don't know it, but thank you for that that moment of relief. Oh, you're welcome. What are you, what's your opening thoughts about The Dirty Dozen? I, I love The Dirty Dozen. This was an awesome movie. As far as how this is going to go on this episode, uh, this I'm going to put this disclaimer out there. I don't know how it's gonna how it's gonna get ranked or how it's gonna end up on the mountain. But don't hate us. Uh, hate the mountain, but also don't hate the mountain. It's always right, and chances are it's going to be right about this one. This movie was. A little action light, uh, you know, not quite the the slam bang type of movie that we are used to or maybe we are expecting. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that this was a book that, you know, this was based on the novel. And I have to imagine that this book was a hit, like a runaway hit where everyone knew it, because there's no way that a writer is committing to writing a dozen characters. This could have easily been like the dirty crew or something like a, like a suicide squad almost because, mm. you know. The the characters in this movie that get developed, I sure do form a bond with them, and I sure do like them and want to see them make it successfully. But the other eight or nine in this dozen, not so much. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, people that I definitely am, <laughs> do not keep track of throughout the course of the film. 
this movie is action light. It does have a giant action set piece at the end, which I definitely you know remembered. I think I'll go ahead and say it's famous. David, you chose this movie, right? A little bit of a masochistic pick in, in my mind, or maybe I don't know if it's sadistic or masochistic. You can ask Kill Bill. This is another. It's kind of like the Poseidon Adventure, David. This is another great movie, but because it's action light, it might not. It might take a little bit of a beating at, at times because this is an action movie podcast. It's a good way to sort of test action through the ages. Like this is a perfectly fine movie, a perfectly fine action movie for 1967, but uh, we make them good now. And I don't know if it's going to hold up in, in the in the lens of 2023. Speaking of modern lens. I just got finished doing a Master Pancake Theater show. That's a movie-mocking show here in Austin, Texas. Very fun. And we did a Worst of 2022. And so I've just sat through a lot of bad modern movies with a lot of bad modern action. When you were like, hey, let's take a break from modern action and travel on back to the 70s, I was like, oh, thank God. I just <laughs> I can't deal with another two CGI characters fighting each other right now. Yeah, there's something refreshing about two... Middle-aged man just kind of tussling in the dirt. Yeah, and apparently one of them was drunk the entire filming. Lee Marvin. No, <laughs> not drunk yeah, Lee Marvin. Was drunk, as drunk as a skunk. Also, fun fact about this movie, David, is it's kind of the template for your classic underdog movie. You know, like your Revenge of the Nerds or your Bad News Bears. I didn't realize it at first watch, but I this time I certainly did. This is a ragtag group, yeah. David, before we go any farther, let's look at the FAQs, right? If you search the term Dirty Dozen Film, Google says these are the questions people are frequently asking, so let's quickly answer them. And by the way, that's a little bit of a cheat, David, because if you type Dirty Dozen, there's a lot of questions about food, I guess. That's like a food thing. Well, typing in Dirty Dozen is how I realized I didn't have my safe search on, so uh, oh. <laughs> I got fired from work today, unfortunately. I love it. Okay, here we go. Is Dirty Dozen based on a true story? You bet your ass it is. It's based on a dozen true stories. How many Dirty Dozen movies did they make? 12, stupid. The first one was called Dirty One. What is the movie Dirty Dozen about? About 150 minutes. I love it. Is the Dirty Dozen a good movie? Uh, we're going to find that out, but yes. Before we watch 12 filthy men go on a suicide mission to kill some Nazis, let's let two dirty men go on a mission of life. David, how are you? I, that didn't make sense, but we're talking about our own friendship. How, how's the, how are you doing? That was a ragtag introduction. I appreciated that quite a bit. So, sometimes they're written out at a time. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm scrambling to put words next to each other word. I'm doing well, Mac. I'm, uh, I brought a visual aid. Not a visual aid, but I brought uh, something to help me with this week's uh, friendship check-in. I, it's it's an inside joke that I, you know, in this day and age, everything is kind of out there, easily referenceable and easily referenced. So when you stumble across something that it feels like it only speaks to you and like a few of your friends, there's something very delightful about that. My girlfriend, The Bombshell, and I were currently reading The Weird Accordion to Al. It's uh, it's by Nathan Rabin. It's a breakdown of Weird Al Yankovic's entire discography, you know, track by track. <laughs> it's just fun. It's like lunchtime reading. Sure. I'm reading a few pages to it. It's, it's pretty great. But there's a passage in here where he talks about a track called Nature Trail to Hell. And it's basically like a, it plays like a trailer for a, for a B-movie horror. And so the passage goes, Nature Trail to Hell delights in bloody, bleary, blood-splattered excess, taking great joy in mapping out the myriad horrors of the titular Fright Flick, a demented slasher film beyond the imagination of even Frightmaster Trent L. Strauss about a homicidal maniac who finds a Cub Scout troop and he hacks up two or three in every scene. So, Mac, I had to explain to the bombshell who Trent L. Strauss was. Yes, of course. Which was delightful. Like, okay, so that's a Best Show reference. That's a Sharpling and Worcester. Uh, that's their archetypal uh, horror director, a director of such classics as The Tool Belt Killer and You're Soaking in Her. Uh, <laughs> so I got to explain that to her. And just the delight in discovering this, like, 
that made it through the editorial process. Nobody questioned like, hey, you're going to have to explain that further. It was just slipped in perfectly. I delighted and I wanted to share that with you. That is that is very funny. Um, thank you for sharing. How are you, Mac Blake? I'm doing good, David. I was watching this movie, Dirty Dozen. And David, did you ever smoke cigarettes? I did for a time, yeah. It was, uh, you know, associated with drinking mostly, but yes, I did. So why'd you stop? Too many ladies? Uh, too many drinks, actually. I had to cut back or my <laughs> life would end shortly. Watching these cool dudes uh, smoke them, if they had them, and they did, it reminded me of a childhood memory, like jogged a childhood memory loose. This was back in elementary school, and I do not remember why, but a teacher was like reading an article about how uh, smoking among kids was on the rise or something like that. Or like, but the, the thrust of the article, the thrust, sure, I'm a journalism major was that Camel Cigarettes was getting rid of Joe Camel because people were complaining that it, he was made to appeal to children. At this point, the teacher's like, uh, does anyone here think Joe Camel is cool? Now, David, growing up, my dad was in the military. He was in the Air Force. And so I spent a lot of time on military bases, specifically Air Force ones. And David, this may not come as a huge shock to you, but did you know that cigarettes are heavily marketed towards our fighting forces? You don't say. It's true. They have them and they smoke them. So there's, I saw a lot of Joe Camel, a lot of Camel cash being thrown around. You know, here's the thing about the Joe Camel ads, David. He's a cartoon camel and he's smoking, but he was always doing something uh, pretty badass. Like, I remember one specifically where he's, you know, he's got a flight suit on. It's unzipped a little bit. And behind him is the airplane he just parked, I guess. And then he has, uh, you know, on each arm, just a gorgeous skank. Because <laughs> I guess the military base, he could either, you know, you have a military ID or just, you know, you're a skank pass. And David, again, I'm not trying to be, I'll hopefully no one finds this misogynistic. I want, these skinks are, are beautiful. I celebrate. Of course. When the lady was like, does anyone here think Joe Camel's cool? And I was like, well, I mean, I mean I've seen this dude in action. He's uh, pretty cool. And I raised my hand. I remember that I was the only one to raise my hand. I, here's the thing. I don't think I was trying to be funny, even though I, I, you know, I was a bit of a, a jerk probably in school. Mm. And I remember the teacher looked at me, shook her head, and just goes, sad, like that. Which, uh, <laughs> oh, my. I know, a little Trumpian. He did, Joe Camel does all this cool stuff. Yeah, okay, he smokes. My dad smoked, too. I still thought he was cool. Right? Yeah. My uh, my dad was cool because of his 30-year smoking habit that he developed because uh, he got free cigarettes in the service. Sure, he was the coolest dude. Well, I again, I don't know if I endorse smoking, but David, I do want to introduce our very first sponsor tonight. Of course, it's Camel Brand Cigarettes. Oh, my God. <laughs> mm, that sweet uh, dromedary smoke. Before and after I get on the mic, I take a drag of Camel cigarettes. Yeah, sometimes during. No, I, that, it's the worst. Uh, smoking. God, it looks so cool, but I just can't. Could you fucking imagine if we did a, a podcast while we were just smoking it during it? What were we watching the other day? Was it Passenger 57? Were people smoking in that airplane still? People were smoking in that God, plane, what yeah. what a nightmare. I cannot, because of uh, once smoking got banned in bars here in Austin, my tolerance for smelling cigarette smoke has disappeared. I, it makes me nauseous so fast. All right, David, uh, enough of this smoke talk. You want to you wanna do this thing or we, you wanna, do you accept this assignment? Mac, I'm volunteering for this assignment. We're going in. All right, David, what is your history with The Dirty Dozen? My history is I watched this in my teens. I want to say this was one of those I watched because the AFI list came out. And it was like 100 movies to watch. And I was like, this is a great start. Uh, it was awesome. I remember it as a teenager. And like, you know, when you're a teenager and you watch an old movie, uh, you know, thinking it's good is hard to come by. This was my first exposure to like the concept of soldiers as misfits, because I think prior to 67, you know, we were still living in that greatest generation type of World War II. Uh, not really talking about Vietnam yet. So our soldiers were were perfect. Our soldiers were clean cut and they were the kind of people you wanted to root for. So to watch this movie at a young age and it's like, oh, these people are imperfect. This is awesome. It, that was, there was something really cool about that. But this is the kind of movie that like 
you know, when you go home, stuck there for the holidays, and you're there's nothing on TV. This is a good movie to watch with with your parents. In fact, I think a many a time I've gone home and it's like, all right, we can either watch Two and a Half Men or Hey, Dirty Dozens on Turner Classics. Let's just watch it. Twenty minutes are gone. Absolutely, like it's just it's a good warm kind of movie. What what about you, Mac? What what is what's your history with the Dirty Dozen? It's a weird thing to lament, but future generations will they because we're all in the streaming world now, David. We're not just stuck in cable. Will they, will they know the joy of flipping around and watching 15 minutes of every movie and being like, I've seen it. You know what I mean? Like They won't. There's something really sad about that. Because if you ask me if I had seen Dirty Dozen, I was like, yes, of course I had seen it. And now watching it from start to finish, oh, I definitely had not. I just saw <laughs> like the last 30 minutes of it on uh, TCM or something like that. And I was like, yeah, this movie rules. Speaking of, Turner Classic Movies did an ad for this film, or just for themselves, I guess like a little sort of branding spot, where it was the Dirty Dozen on Ice and uh, look it up. It's really fun. <laughs> but if, it's got some spoilers in it, though. If you haven't seen, watch The Dirty Dozen first before you see the Ice, Ice Capades version. It's, but it's good. All right, David, let's level set here. Give the people the description of this movie that you would find, say, in the back of the box. You got it. The action never lets up in this extraordinary film of explosive suspense and dramatic fire from director Robert Aldrich. The Dirty Dozen, a strike force of violent criminals involved in one of the most bizarre and difficult combat missions ever. Rugged men sick with hatred, monsters in uniform, condemned by society, and now charged with defending society. Sick with hatred? Wow. <laughs> Lee Marvin is U.S. Army Major John Raceman, whose job it is to train the prisoners. He's backed up by an excellent cast of stars who make up the dozen. Among them are Charles Bronson, Jim Brown, Telly Savalas, Trini Lopez, Donald Sutherland, and John Cassavetes, who won an Academy Award nomination for his betrayal. Their task is to infiltrate a protected German retreat, where the upper echelon of generals go for rest and relaxation. Getting in won't be easy. Some men will die, but nothing will be quite as tough as proving to the army they are worthy of the challenge. The Dirty Dozen also stars Ernest Borgnine, Richard Jekyll, George Kennedy, Ralph Meeker, and Robert Ryan in this tense story filled with sensational war power. 1967, 150 minutes, directed by Robert Aldrich, not rated. Wait, what? not rated? How did that happen? Well, because, you know, they didn't want to get an R slapped on this. They were like, well, fuck yo, we're not getting this thing rated. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it was the 60s, so they can get away with it. That's cool, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it was so bloody, so disturbing. I had nightmares about it, Mac. Well, uh, there's this very bloodless movie, David, for the most part. I think some dude gets shot in the head. Do you like the fact that they say some will die? Do you feel like that's a spoiler, or do you... Or should I expect that as an, uh, as a viewer? I think you should expect that. I like that they say some. You know, I I think it's it's naive to think that all dozen of them are going to come out like arm in arm, uh, tra la lying. But uh, yeah, I think it's fine. I'm glad you read me this back of the box after I saw the movie, David. Because imagine uh, being at a video store back in the day and then picking it up and reading, rugged men sick with hatred, monsters in uniform, condemned by society. I'd be so mad at those those monsters. I threw that box down. I, I should rent Faces of Death. You're asking me to root for something that uh, disgusts me. Yeah, and then I walk out, I'd see a copy of E.T. and salute it. That's a real American there, that extraterrestrial. Uh, also, John Cassavetes, who won an Academy Award nomination, can you win a nomination? Yeah, you secured the nomination, you you won it. It's faint praise, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, that explains why in the Academy Awards, when they're announcing uh, like Best Actor, they're like, and the winners are all of you for being nominated. <laughs> but also, extra winning is not John Cassavetes. David, this movie starts with the classic lion roar of the EMGM logo. You know, fun fact about that lion, David, you know how they got that lion to roar? I don't. 
They just asked him nicely. He was a very polite, human-friendly lion. Terrific. We open on London, 1944, a.k.a. Blimp City. A lot of blimps. A lot of blimps. We open on the hanging of a military officer who we don't need to know or see. Thanks, movie. We meet John Reisman, a salty army veteran played by Major Lee Salty Lee Marvin. Although a proven and capable soldier, Reisman's defiance of authority has kept him stuck at the lowly rank of major. He is meeting with Generals Warden and Denton, played by Ernest Borgnine and Robert Weber, respectively, and Colonel Everett Breed, played by Robert Ryan, to accept an impossible mission. Train a group of 12 lowlifes for a suicide mission across enemy lines. Reisman not only accepts the mission, he volunteers for it, Mac. David, so yes, we start with this kind of what-the-fuck hanging in a military prison, which I didn't know you could kill people in a military prison or hang them like this. But then later, when Reisman is talking to the general Ernest Borgnine, he's like, what'd you, Borgnine, first of all, welcome back to the show, Ernest Borgnine. Yes, first repeat member of the mountain, I believe. I, I think, Yeah, might be, might be. Borgnine, aka General Warden, is like, what'd you think of the hanging? And, and Reisman's like, well, I don't, it was fine. And he's like, well, you weren't there for your entertainment. Why? Why did they make Reisman witness that hanging? Why did they make us witness that hanging? Yeah, it's Reisman's whole relationship with his commanding officers feels like one big setup. Like they're just trapping him into unwinnable situations. And this is like, yeah, like for us, the viewer, this really, this, this is how the movie earns its not rating. Uh, it's, it's stuff like this. It's in your face hangings. This is how they start the movie. Boom. But yeah, it makes no sense to have Reisman there. Yeah, I don't get it. But then Reisman, he goes to headquarters, right, where we he bumps into, I guess, the general's secretary, played by, oh, my God, that's George Kennedy. I don't remember George Kennedy ever being young. That's the youngest he's going to get. I believe he's a spry 19 in this movie. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> now I really want to know how old he is. Okay, because I was about to say he's an old 19. Well, I'll tell you what. Did you know Lee Marvin is 43 in this movie? So uh, look, <laughs> look at the screen, and you see another 43-year-old Mac Blake. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I'm 42, Dave. Oh, we shouldn't have told people our age. Oh, no. Our millennial audience. Oh, no. I'm doxxed. They've, they've, they've left us for some, some young uh, virile tastemakers. Uh, not that I'm not virile. I mean, now I feel like I have to prove this. All right, guys, switch to the Twitch stream. I'm about to... No. Okay. Uh, John Reisman meets George Kennedy. What's, I, what's his character's name? It doesn't matter. So Reisman enters, and they have this exchange. John, good to see you. Don't you give me that. We had dinner last night together, remember? It's like, Okay. Well, weird. And then he walks in and then he sees uh, Colonel Breed and they both give each other a glare. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Reisman has complicated relationships with people. He's already already off to the, some wrong footing. So they go into this, you know, the headquarters where, where they're meeting this palace. This I don't know what this is. I guess they commandeered a castle or something because it's the most elegant room I've ever seen in a war movie like later on in the movie, they're going to have a POV shot from the lamp looking down. It's like this like very ornate lamp. It doesn't quite set the tone that befits an action movie. Well, before that was the uh, U.S. headquarters in, in London during World War, World War II. It was actually the very first Crate and Barrel, David. So, uh, oh. yeah, that's why you, you that stylish decor. Then you get this exchange between uh, General Warden and, and the other high-ranking officers in, in Reisman. I did a pretty good job in Italy. And you lost it up by exceeding your orders, and that isn't the first time either, right? I didn't write those reports. Just what is that supposed to mean? It means that I don't necessarily agree with what's in them. Maybe you'd uh, like to write your own. No, thank you, sir. I'm not very interested in embroidery, only in results. I'm not very interested in embroidery, only results. 
which is a great tough guy line. And David, also my first mark out moment. I just is that right? Yeah, because there was a lot of like little funny pieces of dialogue or exchanges here, especially between Borgnine and Lee Marvin. And so it kind of was like building, and then you get to that line, and I, I, I had a grin from ear to ear when he said that. I thought that was really funny. I will say throughout this movie, there's a lot of great lines where if I was in the frame of mind to mark out over writing, I would have marked out at least a half dozen times. There's a lot of really good lines in this movie. So the higher-ups detail the assignment for Reisman. They're like, hey, you got to take these uh, prisoners, these military prisoners, and go on this like suicide mission. What do you think? And he's like, I have permission to speak freely. And then you get a shot of George Kennedy, like ever so slightly, like shaking his head, like, don't fuck, don't say it. And I also thought that was great because it's like you get a little bit of insight into the character, like, this guy shoots his mouth off. And then he says, uh, he's like, frankly, I don't like it and I think it stinks, which was another, <laughs> not a mark on one, but I did laugh out loud at it. But also, Reisman's like, look, you want these dudes to fight? Because at first, the higher ups are like, oh, I'll tell you what, we'll, uh, when they come back, uh, we'll just, we'll, you know, reduce their sentences slightly or something like that if they succeed. And he's like, nah, man. Reisman's like, look, if you want them to do a suicide mission, you actually want them to care. When they come back, they're free. They like rejoin the military. And like, yeah, all right, okay, sure. And he's like, oh, I'll leave it to my discretion, but maybe. So the, there's actually a moment, you know, when they're, when the, the mission is spelled out to Reisman and he has to, you know, quote unquote, volunteer for it, he expresses his displeasure with it. He's like, you know, it, it stinks. Borgnine sells this as only Borgnine can. If this was anybody else, it wouldn't have worked. But he was like, well, they don't have an alternative way to go. And Reisman says, that's no way for anybody to go. And so Borgnine says, I know people who should, who should go exactly that way. <laughs> and like has the Borgnine laugh. And was like, Borgnine, goddammit, you sell it in such a way that charms me. Borgnine rules in this role. And at some point also, he's like, you know, uh, Reisman's complaining about it. And so Borgnine goes, I'm pretty sure it's Borgnine. He says, ask relevant questions or shut up, which again, just another... <laughs> Get me out of here. I know, but I liked it. I could have stayed in this scene a little bit longer, even though the scene was too long. But then we're introduced to our titular Dirty Dozen through a meet and greet with Reisman and some getting to know you psych evaluations. We learn which soldiers turned prisoners we're going to root for, like Wadislaw and Jefferson, played by Charles Bronson and Jim Brown. Which soldiers we're not going to like, but damn it, we're going to respect them, like Franco, played by John Cassavetes. And which soldier we can't wait to see get crushed by a falling piano, like the aptly named Maggot, played by Tally Savalas. Holy cow, Tally Savalas in this role, Mac Blake. Ah, uh, first of all, Maggot, I don't know, man. That's a little too much, you know? There, there's a lot of writery touches. Like, that's why it feels like that. I wouldn't doubt if that's lifted from the book and that's a class. Like, oh, you got to have Maggot in the book. Yeah, I mean, like, it's kind of like Stephen King. He's, he's written like a million books now. And so I think in Dr. Sleep, there's a character named like Jill the Hat. What is it in uh, The Stand? There's a trash can man or something. Like, <laughs> he's written like a million characters. Some of them are going to have real fucking stupid names. But yeah, Telly Savalas is uh, a little too good in this role. He's got a good mix of, of some sadistic menace that he kind of brings out. And a little bit of that, uh, what is it, uh, Colonel Kurtz from uh, Apocalypse Now? A little bit of like, uh, oh, this guy is killing people because he's also maybe a religious nut. It makes me want to do a deep dive into Telly Savalas' career and where he was at this point in his career because, like, this is a dicey role to take on if if you're kind of on uncertain ground in Hollywood. Like, this could really be the kiss of death, but for him to have a career after this, like, he's fantastic in this role, and, and I'm happy for him. 
Well, apparently Cassavetes was like blackballed when he was cast in this movie because he uh, punched a producer or punched an editor for fucking with one of his films, in, in his opinion. So, yeah, to go from like a guy like no one wanted to work with to winning an Academy Award nomination. <laughs> apparently this was a reclamation project for some people. Uh, these credits are great. Uh, I, you know, it's the sort of that road case font, you know, that, that spray painted on. It, it's, you know, you're getting introduced to you're putting names with faces. Uh, you also, you know, the music is great in this movie. You know, it's very effective in this scene. It's a little, you know, uh, military march. Music by Frank Duvall, Mac. Do, are you familiar with that name at all? No. Well, uh, I recognized it from the end credits of The Brady Bunch. Uh, Frank Duvall did the theme to The Brady Bunch, My Three Sons, like uh, Father Knows Best, in addition to a slew of other movies. So that was a wild moment for me to see that, that credit. That's a hardworking person. That's like if uh, Hans Zimmer also did like Alf or something like that. But this is, you know, this is where we establish Reisman's relationship with the Dirty Dozen. This is also where we see, you know, little bits of the personality start to come out. This is where Franco, he has a moment where they're all falling in line and they have to now, you know, call out their numbers. One, two, three. So by the time you get to Franco, John Cassavetes, he shouts 11, 11! Like that's his, you know, he's got to stand out. And so Reisman calls him over. He wants to talk to him and he, Franco refuses. He, he's a bit defiant. And like, he's kind of playing it up. Like this guy can't do shit to me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm condemned. I'm already in prison. I'm not really in the military. He can't do shit. Yeah. What are you going to do? Kill me, kill me faster. He's set to die in two days. Yeah. So like Reisman is like, hey, come here for a second. So Cassavetes walks over. He's not scared. And Reisman pulls him over. He's like, uh, I forget what he says, but it's something effective like, if you don't fall in line, I'm going to, you know, bash your brains in. And suddenly Franco falls in line. And I, I'm like, weren't you expecting that the second you were called over there? I would have been thinking, okay, I'm walking over to a beating. Like, how does the threat of violence more terrifying to him than the almost certainty of violence? Yeah, I don't know. But I will say I was a little surprised by Lee Marvin's performance because I, I cannot remember everything I've seen Lee Marvin in. But I tend to picture him as more of like a stoic kind of tough guy just spitting out little one-liners, kind of like in the opening scene of this movie. And then when you see uh, Lee Marvin in this scene where he's meeting his his Dirty Dozen uh, for Project Overleaf, he uh, he's kind of like joking around with them. And when when Franco starts clowning around, Reisman's like, I get it. I hate authority too. And kind of like smiling and being a little uh, cocksure. And then when he brings them over, he's like, yeah, come here, buddy. Come here. <laughs> I'll fucking beat your brains in. Like, I think it was that little like turn gave him the blue steel there. Uh, Franco decided to fall in line because he's like, at that moment, they're just asking him to march. And I guess I'd rather march than get severely beaten. So yeah, Franco decided to, to hup too. Was that an expression? Sure. You bet it is. Yeah, so, you know, everybody falls in line. We Reisman establishes himself and they go through counting themselves down. They go through marching. This movie is really establishing the monotony of this mission and it's passing the savings on us. We'll see this a lot throughout the movie. It's just like, okay, we get that you have to be you have to be meticulous. You have to be deliberate. I understand that. You don't have to make this a two and a half hour long movie. So after Reisman's initial like get to know you, he then he goes and meets the Dirty Dozen one by one. And that's where you get a little bit more deep dive into people's characters. Charles Bronson, who uh, his character is uh, Wadisla, right? That's right. Who does speak German. That's going to be uh, crucial sort of later in the movie. And the reason Wadisla is in military prison is because uh, Wadislaw shot his commanding officer, but only because his commanding officer had basically like led that unit into a death trap and then abandoned them. And this is one of the times where one of the Dirty Dozen refers to someone they don't like as a lover. He's like, this lover? Like, got out of there. I guess that means like a lover, not a fighter. Is that what you took it to mean? No, I think it was like a clean version of motherfucker. Like, oh, you mother lover. 
Oh, okay. And Twitch Reisman says, like, I don't mind that you shot him. I just mind that someone saw you do it. Hey, blah, 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 bad. However, Wattislaw here is reading a newspaper called Yank. And the one of the articles in it is called What It Means to Be a Jewish Girl. What the fuck is this newspaper? Is it, I, I have to assume it's the only newspaper around because, like, you got to read anything else. It's like reading Ranger Rick or something when you're stuck in prison. Is this like a British version of like a like a lad, like an American lad newspaper, you know, instead of like Maxim or FHM or whatever the other one's called? It's like what it means to be a Jewish girl. Is the answer sexy? I don't I don't know. They're taking liberties with the magazine Yank. I, I really don't want to explore that any further. Again, Mag, it's a newspaper, David. Uh, oh, forgive yeah. me. I mean, <laughs> oh, daily. Oh, I can't wait for tomorrow's edition. You know what? I'll say this. Wattislaw seems like he's got a little bit of depth in him, even though he's an idiot. Maybe it's like just an in-depth piece of like, here's what it's like, the Jewish American experience for a young lady in the 1940s. Perhaps. We also meet uh, Jimenez, played by Trini Lopez. And if you think that because Trini Lopez is a singer-songwriter, do you think that he's going to, they're going to shoehorn in a musical performance by him later? Yes, they absolutely will. We don't see their meeting, but after Reisman leaves, he's like, uh, hey, military policeman, hey, MP, they said you took away this dude's guitar strings? And he's like, yeah. It was, uh, we don't want him to hang himself. I don't think I've ever heard of a dude hanging himself with his own guitar strings. And military policeman's like, yeah, and guess what? I don't want to be the first one to see it. Which I got to say, pretty good answer. The guitar strings, they might come back into play later. I don't know. No, that was such a weird, like, you've never seen anybody hang themselves with guitar strings, have you? Like, no. And I want to stay undefeated in that regard. Thank you very much. And of course, his military policeman is actually Sergeant Bowron, played by Richard Jackal? Jackal? How would you say that? I'd say Jackal. Jackal. He's a Jackal. And I thought that was kind of like a one-off character because we're not in this jail to meet the MPs, but this guy sticks around, surprisingly enough. He does. We're supposed to endear ourselves to him, but it, it doesn't quite take. He's kind of like your symmetrical face, like all-American like soldier. He's kind of what you'd expect a soldier to look like, I guess. Not like this, these other scum. Yeah, he's like an all-American Bazooka Joe before he got his eye shot out. Yeah, that was a really gory comic. Did you ever read that? Oh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't finish it. It was disgusting. Did you know Alan Moore Ghost wrote that? Is that right? That's why it unnecessarily involves rape. After everyone has been evaluated, the dozen meet with Reisman in the gymnasium to go over the deal. Die out there or die in here, and if one of you screws up, then all of you get it in the head. So I guess it would be important for everyone to stick together and form a bond. Right, Maggot? God, his okay. Name, his name is Maggot. Come on. <laughs> See the red flag. See it. <laughs> yeah, you know, so Reisman's gathering everybody together and, you know, he's spelling it out. And everybody is on board with this. Everybody is cool with it. But Maggot's got to speak up and he's like, you know, he says something derogatory about Jim Brown being in the group. Jim Brown being a uh, person of color. And it, it starts a fight and like... Man, they do a really good job. You know, they don't develop a lot about a lot of these characters, but they sure do make Maggot a real piece of shit. Yeah, at this point, we we know he's a murderer. He's also possibly a rapist. Did you, were they clear about that? So, okay, I think this movie wants to say, see, he didn't rape anybody. Forgive me for using the word. I know it's a very harsh word to hear, but, you know. Yeah, who are you, Alan Moore? God, I will not let up on that guy tonight. I will not let up on him. But yeah, Savalas, you know, he he's like, I didn't rape that woman. I killed her, though, because she was wicked. So, like, he's painting himself as this angel of death. You know, uh, you know, he's writing, you know, he's writing the wrongs of society. So he's not engaging in that stuff. But the fact that he even mentions it puts it in your head that he is rape adjacent. And that's too close of the neighborhood to me. Yeah, and so he also is now a racist, too, in case we didn't hate him enough. Yay. But David, when Reisman walks into this room, 
what's Wadislaw doing? Oh, he's working on the speed bag, you know, you know, uh, doing a little boxing there. And so when Reisman walks in, he's like, all right, everybody, uh, you know, uh, quiet down. So, of course, everybody stops. But what does Bronson do? Gets that one last shiggity-giggity-giggity in, and it's so satisfying. <laughs> David, uh, my feral wife used to take this boxing class. Uh, let me see if I can be more uh, belittling with it. She took a little boxing class? No. <laughs> no, she took this boxing class. When she would be finished, I was like, how was your class today? And she would tell me. And then I don't know why. It's just one of those little jokes where you, you latch onto it and you won't let it go. And I was like, oh, did you work out with the speed bag today? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, so you're going like, dig it, dig it, dig it. And then when you were done, did you give it that one last punch? Dig it, dig, 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 dig. And she's like, the first time I asked her, she's like, no. And then I would ask her every time. And, you know, I, don't, I think sometimes she would leave the room before I finished just because I would do it. But she was watching this part of the movie with me. And when Bronson started, like, you know, you see him dig it, dig it on the speed bag. I said out loud, I was like, oh, yeah, get it one more punch, get it one more punch, get it one more punch. And then he stops. And sure enough, dig, 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 dig. And my feral wife goes, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is the cheapest markup moment. But I'm going to say this is markup moment number two for me because I, le- I legitimately marked down and had very little to do with them. I mean, it was the movie, I guess. They'll take it where I can get it. I, I'm going to – it was the movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's also like how do you not embrace that as the as the only thing you could do with a speed bag? Like what? You're like, what are you just going to stop it? No, that's ridiculous. You can't headbutt it either. No, you absolutely just give it one last good hit. David, as we continue to meet the Dirty Dozen, I started thinking about this thing in my head, and I tried to let it go, but I could not. David, I think fan casting, when people are like, oh, who do you think will be a good Mr. Fantastic? For the most part, I find that pretty tedious to listen to other people's uh, dumb opinions about it. However, I will admit I do a little bit of it myself. David, for some reason, maybe because we're meeting these these psycho uh, warrior criminals, right? I could not help but be like, okay, if, if they had to make a Batman's Rogue Gallery out of this cast... Who would be what? Let's not go through the whole dozen because I cannot remember some of them. But let's hit the main one. I think Cassavetes is Joker. Savalas is Penguin. Oh, that is interesting. That is a good choice. Jim Brown, Charles Bronson. Which one's Two-Face? Which one's Mr. Freeze? Oh, heck. Okay, yeah. I would say Bronson or Vladislaw as Two-Face because he's already got like a twisted sense of uh, morality there. And he's got a twisted sense of face. He has a very, uh, his, his face has a lot of character. And I'd say Jim Brown would be an interesting Mr. Freeze because Mr. Freeze again, you know, he's not he's not someone who's like I'm a I'm a evil criminal. He's he's doing these things to save his wife before we get to him in the Batman weeds. And then I think uh, Clint Walker with his portrayal of like uh, he's tough but kind of stupid. I think he'd make a good Killer Croc. Terrific, yeah. Oh, and then Donald Sutherland. I got to go Riddler for Donald Sutherland. Yeah, because he can kind of trick you because he's a real dumbo. But uh, if he if he pulls out something clever, then it'll throw me for a loop. Now, David, I I did have Tosavalos, but not as Penguin, although that would have been, honestly, he might be the perfect Penguin. Uh, but uh, I was going to say he'd be Harley Quinn in drag. I feel like he, would, <laughs> he could pull that off pretty well. All right, Mr. J. Oh, actually, no, Donald Sutherland should totally be Scarecrow. Fuck. Oh, come on. That's so good. See what I mean? Are you, our listeners right now, are you finding this as tedious as I am? Yep. <laughs> it's the worst. The dozen take a lovely drive through the countryside to get to their base camp, which they have to set up themselves. Shame. We get an action set piece. We'll call oh, no, wait, no, hold on. It's actually a delightful montage where Pinkley, played by Donald Sutherland, paints over someone's hand and Franco pockets some wire cutters for later. A month later, and their camp is finally finished. This is my favorite episode of Gilligan's Island. Uh, this is <laughs> delightful. The The Devol soundtrack really comes through. You, you hear the flute flourishes. Oh, I thought you said this was by Devo. <laughs> no, no, Mac. No, there's no de-evolution here. Not yet. I, I explain why all these characters were whipping it so good. But golly, this movie sure does like taking its time. Like, 
I find it really hard to criticize this movie because it is an entertaining movie. It fills the the two hours and 30 minutes and it's a delightful ride. You know, I enjoy taking it with these characters, but for crying out loud, I don't need, I don't need to watch this thing get built in real time. I don't need to be there the whole month while they build it. Yeah. It really is like a tone check of this movie. There's some humorous aspects to this movie, but this kind of like broad, like, you know, you're, you're painting a door and the next thing you know, you, you paint your friend. It's like, Oh, (laughs) what, that is more. That feels more like Brady Bunch than the goddamn Dirty Dozen. But also, they're like, we need the people on this mission. We'll give you six weeks to train for it. That seems like a lot of time. Like for this, I mean, I don't know. It seemed. I thought this mission was a little bit more pressing than that. Yeah, I figured they'd come with a skill set. Like I didn't know they had to start from day one on training them. Also, I should have said this up top. The fact that the army viewed this as a suicide mission is pretty crazy right <laughs> because what they're doing is the the prod, the operation here overleaf trying to assassinate all of these uh, german uh, generals this is supposed to happen like a day or two before d-day right mm-hmm. right we're gonna stick, stick these guys on a suicide mission unfit for our regular troops who we will throw into a goddamn meat grinder <laughs> on omaha beach like it just i don't know saving private Ryan had not come out yet in the 1960s so maybe Maybe some people didn't realize that. I don't know. The dozen began their training with some telephone pole and grappling hook exercises, which they don't take very seriously. One night, Franco tries to escape, but Vladislaw and Jefferson are there to make sure he doesn't screw it up for the rest of them. Reisman also has some bonding moments with members of the team, like shooting a gun at Jimenez, played by Trini Lopez, or bullying Posey, played by Clint Walker. Yeah, and Franco, by the way, uh, he's the guy we meet who's got a bad attitude from the start, and that bad attitude never leaves. He's just uh, constantly complaining about this thing. And then, yeah... They were like, look, if you try to escape, uh, I'm going to fucking shoot you. And he tries to escape kind of the first chance he gets. Yeah, well, because we trusted him with wire cutters when they're putting the fence up. Like, nobody kept a closer eye on him. So Jefferson and Wadislaw go out one night, you know, while Franco's trying to sneak out. And they stop him and they, you know, take the wire cutters away. They punch him to the ground. And then they're taking him back to the back to the quarters, back to the camp. And Reisman's right there. And he's like, oh, slipped on a bar of soap, did he? So it's like, how much... You're like a puppet master, Reisman. I don't like it. It's like, why did they leave him alone with the uh, wire cutters? It's because uh, he works for the New York Times Review blog. No, he... Ugh, the jokes don't get any better, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's because like he's like, you know what? I don't want to make it too hard to escape because I want to weed out these people who would rather leave, you know, rather run than gun, I guess. So yeah, Reisman was going to full on going to let him escape, but also he wanted to give his other squad mates a chance to, to bring him back, form a little uh, team unity here. But speaking of this attempted breakout, I'm going to start a running tally, an unofficial running tally of things in this movie that could have been action. And like this escape could have absolutely been a fight scene. This could have been a test between Franco versus Wadislaw versus Jefferson. Like who's going to be the out? Like there's no real attempt in this group to be the alpha or to be the top dog. So, you know, we could have had those little struggles. We could have had those physical battles. You know, I'll say this a lot throughout the rest of this episode. There's a lot of telling and not showing. And like, don't tell me you're a dirty dozen. Fucking show me you're a dirty dozen. Yeah, and there's not even like a uh, a little uh, musical whistly tune like in The Great Escape to cover up these scenes. All right, David, then they start training and uh, it's time for Jimenez to climb a rope. But he only climbs it so high and then he's like, I'm scared. I'm scared of this high rope. And so what does what Reisman do to, to motivate him? So Reisman says, you know, if you come down here, I'm going to kill you. So I want to make sure you make it up there. So he pulls out his little uh, submachine gun and he shoots the rope in half, like cuts the rope off with the gunfire. And this this movie was clearly made before we had a common knowledge of guns, before it was so the guns were so prevalent in society that like 
we know better. Like, it might have been really impressive or very funny in 1967, but this is the most fucking ridiculous thing in the movie. But it works because uh, Jimenez, through the magic of sped up film, (laughs) goes into fast motion and climbs the rest of the rope. Reisman also does, he jinxes Jimenez in this uh, this scene because he's also, you know, all right, you know, reset that rope, Posey, because Franco's going up and Franco's like, why do I have to go up? Jimenez is the one who's got to do it. And Reisman's like, well, what if something happens to Jimenez? And it's like, no, at at no other point in the movie is anybody's mortality (laughs) questioned except for Jimenez. And uh, no spoilers, guys, but uh, it is a bit of a jinx. But here's the thing, David, you can't just train these dudes. You got to break them, right? And so Reisman's like, hey, uh, Posey, get up here. And Posey played by the very imposing Clint Walker. And he's like, hey, Posey, stick me with his knife. He's like, I don't think I can do that, Major. He's like, it's okay. It's got a scabbard on him. It's not a real knife. And then as soon as Posey reaches for the knife, Reisman pulls the scabbard off. And he's like, go for it, right? Posey's like, I don't want to do this. This seems like a trap, which Posey's not a complete idiot because it is. And Reisman's like, Posey, what'd you do to get here, right? Uh, tell everyone, tell tell your uh, your fellow soldiers here. It, it gets revealed that Posey drove someone's jawbone through their brain. He punched them so hard, jawbone into brain. And this is one of those moments where I'm like, show this to me, movie. Like, that sounds really cool. That sounds like some awesome action. I would like to see something to that effect. So, David, there's actually the second movie with Clint Walker I saw this week because I... I was uh, watching TV with my mom, watching the Grit channel, because that's what that's apparently a real channel. And we watched this movie where Clint Walker takes on a bear, Night of the Grizzly. And my mom was like, hey, look this. Can you look it up? Didn't he die? Like he got a spear gun through his chest or something? And I was like, what? I don't I don't know about that. And so I looked it up. I was like, oh, no, he died of uh, congestive heart failure. But yeah, I looked it up, and, and she was kind of right. Like he, he had a skiing accident where he, uh, I think, a ski pole into his chest, and he was actually pronounced dead. But then Holy shit. was not. Anyway, is that a fun fact? Clint Walker, everybody. Clint Walker, everybody, Clint Walker. Uh, but yeah, so this whole, you know, the scene with Posey, it's it's a test, you know, because Reisman wants to make sure that Posey can control his temper, even when he's being pushed around, even when he's being tested. And so finally, Posey does snap because he's conflict, you know, his commanding officer, this guy who's he's trying to, you know, trust and respect is like goading him on. So I guess I'll do what my CO wants me to do and I'll fight him. So, of course, Reisman subdues him and, you know, takes the knife away from from Posey. And he says to him, you know, as the lesson of this sequence, he's like, control your temper and no one can take this knife from you. Yeah, bitch, I know. I'm working really hard on controlling my temper and you tested the limits of that. Like, I'm not going to trust anybody the way I do. I didn't care for this. Yeah, it just seemed like, how could Reisman be so sure he was not going to get stabbed? You know what I mean? I guess because the answer is, it's a movie. But I mean... (laughs) There's a million things that go wrong where you get stabbed real quick. And he's like, all right, give me back the knife. The lesson is don't hand someone a knife. Dismissed. Oh, God. Oh, this fuck. It cut deep. That got bone. Yeah, never bring a knife to a lesson. But then he's like, hey, Posey, uh, it's okay. Go go talk to the doc because it's time for some psych evaluations, right? That's right. So after some more psych evaluations where Maggot continues to wave around his permission slip for later in the movie. And we find out Vladislaw is wacko from Animaniacs. The results are in. The Dozen is a twisted antisocial bunch of psychopathic deformities, but let's not make that a reason to stop the mission. This is also where Franco decides to stage a revolt in protest of having to shave and bathe with cold water. Have it your way, decides Reisman, and the Dirty Dozen is born. Suppose he goes in to talk to a therapist, I guess, or a psychiatrist. Uh, Reisman's like, how'd it go, Posey? And he's like, good, Major. The doctor said he might be able to teach me letters. Boy, my family would be real proud of me if I wasn't an illiterate idiot. 
do we really have to broadcast that one? You know what I mean? Like really telegraph the fact that Posey's stupid or simple. See, I think so. I think this movie, you know, it's not, I don't want to say it's a poorly written movie. It's a silly written movie. Like this really is a shorthand for, hey, don't you care about Posey? Don't you want to see him learn his letters? Don't you want to see him book learning? Oh man, isn't it going to be sad when he inexplicably gets killed later in the movie? Yeah, I think it's this movie is just, it's rushing a lot of things and then taking its time with a lot of things. Problem is Clint Walker. I mean, yeah, he's a big brute. He doesn't come across as that stupid. Like, or maybe he's just not doing a good enough job acting or he, he wouldn't let himself play that dumb. Because maybe it's just like the, hey, the doctor said he will teach me letters later on. <laughs> just you seem, <laughs> you seem too well polished. But yeah, we get some more of Savalas here and just more giant red flags with everything he says oh you mean when he says uh i have an insight into women that others don't have and that there's 11 evil men out there and they must be punished for their wickedness like hey man find somebody else or make it the dirty 11 yeah and then i don't know what kind of psychiatrist it is but then after uh reisman goes to meet with him the psychiatrist is like don't do this these men are terrible terrible men (laughs) do not do this and in fact he even says like uh tell you what let me weed some of them out, like especially, especially Maggot, which, look, the fact that Maggot is going to turn on them later, the movie is laying it on so thick that now you just think Reisman's a fucking idiot for not doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Reisman's like, no, look, I didn't pick these dudes. The government picked these dudes. All right. This is the starting lineup picked by Uncle Sam, and that's who they're going to get. Almost just like, again, like stubborn, right? He's just like, oh, they want me to do these these men? Fine, fuck them. But it's like, you're risking your own life here, too. Ah, which that's the other thing. I did not think... In the beginning, that he was going to go on this mission. The way it was described, it was like he's going to train the men to go on the mission. But it never seemed to doubt, I guess, uh, from the movie's perspective, that he was going to lead the squad into battle. Yeah, Bowron too. Like I didn't think he was going to make that final trip, but sure, yeah. I really did not think the MP who would just kind of get shit on this entire movie was going to also <laughs> make that trip because it seems like he's good at his job. You got You guys are scum, and you're a loose cannon, Reisman. You're going to go on the suicide mission. Also, Baron, you're there too. We like you, but you know, uh, we just. Someone's got to drive. But the doctor, like, he even spells it out. He says, this this group is made up of one religious maniac, one malignant dwarf, two near idiots, and the rest I don't even want to think about. Again, what if this was shown and not told? What if, like, this script was written well enough to communicate that for us to, like, to absorb the fact that these people are, are a, a motley crew? Like, you know, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it from a, from a script reading and writing standpoint, but uh, this could have been a sharper movie. Now, Wadislaw, played by Bronson, I get the sense that he's a uh, a soldier, right? He doesn't want to see people killed. And maybe he's got a little bit of a some moral leeway that some other people do not have. But I did not get the sense that he was an idiot. No. No, I think he's very clever. In fact, the, I mean, this, you know, I made reference to him being wacko from Animaniacs because this is a, a classic Animaniacs bit where he's just having fun with the psychiatrist answering the questions in ways that he's not supposed to. I think Bronson's, you know, kind of one of the smartest people in the room. And I really enjoyed the heck out of this bit. I, you know, again, I wish this was marketed at more as a comedy or more like a, gosh, it's almost feeling like a masher at Catch-22, really, when you, the more you think about it, like, and less so like an action movie. So when he was like, um, I'll say a word and you tell me what you're thinking about. Wattisla. And he's like, okay, Doug, duh. what are you thinking about? And he's like, no, uh, just, just tell me what you're thinking about. Uh, Apple. And he's like, dodges. And he's like, okay, um togetherness he's like baseball glove and he's clearly just saying talking because he's thinking about baseball you got the sense that he's fucking with the doctor absolutely yeah Uh, i I got the sense that he was just a kind of an like he didn't understand 
the assignment. No, I think he. No, I think it's. I, I think he understood the assignment and felt like it was a waste of his time. No, I. I. I got a different read on it. I mean, that actually tracks more with the character because I was like, why are they going out of their way to make Wadisaw seem stupid? I don't think he was. So then the the boys are out shaving, right? And they're like, ah, cold water. I'm so sick of this cold water. And Sergeant Bowen's like, if you shave in the field, you're gonna have cold water. And he's like, well, we're not in the field. Jefferson's like, I think Franco's right about this one. Cold water does not make us better soldiers. Franco, sh- shut the fuck up. I get that Franco's a complainer, and this is like the last straw. But it just <laughs> it's just more Franco complaining. Again, you know, if you wanted to develop this character differently, make him the rascal. Make him this the person who is like. Hey, you guys need me more than I need you. I'm a I'm a condemned man. Like, you know, I think I'm gonna like it here. You know, let me let me get some hot water when I shave. You know, trying to just needle Reisman, trying to, you know, kind of, you know, make it all more about him. Like there's an opportunity there, but the movie goes a different way with it. Yeah, because Reisman likes it. You know, like he he's like, oh, these guys are banding together. Like uh at some point here he's like, thank God for Franco, or he says something along those lines. You know, Reisman comes out and he's like, uh, so you guys are telling me you're not going to shave anymore if it's if it's going to be in cold water. Who who feels this way? Everyone. So Franco steps forward, then everyone else steps forward. And he's like, all right, fine. No more shaving and no more fucking bathing. Take away their soap. Reisman goes right back inside to his drinks. <laughs> he's like, he and the doctor are just like, can't wait to rush to that bottle again. And he's like, no, this is good. They're going to have some unity here. And we flash forward a little bit and we see that everyone has grown uh, their Movember beards. And in theory, I guess they haven't bathed in like a week or two. And then you hear a Bowen here like dressing them down, right? So now if you, you dirty dozen have no objections. Could we put some effort into this writing? Like I know it's the title of the book that the movie is based on, but you got to finesse it a little bit. You got to work it in. It's like, the hoots and hollers in that theater. That must have been, the dirty dozen, we fucking did it. They, they, they cursed a lot in 67. Yeah, I did not remember that that was why they were called the dirty dozen. I thought it was because they were doing a dirty job, right? So I did not need a literal reason to call them this. <laughs> so I wrote down in my notes, dirty dozen, boo. <laughs> because, yeah, the way he says it, too, Byron might have, he might as well just looked at the camera and been like, wink. So the dozen have to take parachute training, but in order to do that, they'll have to go to a military base where they'll be in danger of giving up the details of their top secret mission. Pinkley pretends to be a general in order to fool Reisman's nemesis, the fastidious Colonel Breed, and Vladislaw gets roughed up in the latrine from some jealous soldiers who don't like secrets. The dozen suspect Reisman orders the soldiers to rough up Vladislaw, and they don't like it one bit. They also complete their parachute training. So this sequence starts, you know, um, Reisman has to brief them and lets them know, hey, we're going on to a base shut your mouth. Don't even wear your dog tags. I don't want you to say anything about this mission. That's how top secret it is. Now go get some dinner. There's a, there's a moment where Franco, you know, goes to get Chow. And like, we spend as much time with this little bit about how, you know, this isn't fit to feed a dog or whatever. You know, I think I stepped in this. We get as much time on that as we do the preamble to the mission. And it's like, that's sort of the movie in a nutshell. It's trying to it, it's it's softening too much instead of just throwing you into the action. David, I watched this movie on a very cold night here in in Texas where it was below freezing, and so all I saw was someone enjoying a bowl of delicious steaming hot chili. <laughs> when he when he uh, slopped that uh, big pile of brown into his, his bowl, I was like, "Well, that looks good." So I I, I couldn't help couldn't help Franco there. But they go from there to the base. Now here's the thing: Reisman, in order to make sure that his unit was not bothered told uh, the 
the you know base commander or whatever, he's like, hey, there's a general with us and he's undercover and he does not want to be bothered. So don't fucking bother us. But that backfires because when he shows up, Colonel Breed has hired a little brass band to play like uh, Hail the Chief or something here uh, just to, to welcome the, the supposed general. Yeah, it's some fanfare. And it's funny because they keep stopping and starting. They're like, oh, no, the general's not here yet. But no, no, stop it. Stop it. Oh, no, he's coming. And it's very funny. Uh, what is this doing in an action movie? Like, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my God, they're going to have to infiltrate this base and they're going to have to keep it on the down low. What a tense moment. And this is just it's one of the funnier sequences in the movie. Yeah, this is real screwball humor, which would be fine if this was like Stripes, the movie Stripes. But it's not. This is the Dirty Dozen. This is supposed to be kind of like a more of a sort of a rebellious take on a war movie. And right now we're just getting some. I mean, we're still like thumbing our noses at the uh, established colonel here, but still uh, kind of uh, kind of stupid. I wanted this scene to be over. However, Breed's like, I heard there's a general on board. And Reisman's like, yeah, he's undercover. He doesn't want to be bothered. And Breed's like, I was kind of hoping he would inspect our troops, which why? He basically just was like, uh, I was kind of hoping he would uh, tell me I'm pretty and give me a gold sticker and give me an A plus for being good at army, mother. <laughs> Reisman goes back. And he's like, uh, who wants to be a general? Wants to be, pretend to be a general. Uh, the youngest Donald Sutherland you've ever seen in your life. You could be a general. Which I read somewhere that he Clint Walker is supposed to do this, but he did not want to. But it did not expand on why Clint Walker did not want to. Yeah, because like he would have been... Per- it's it's almost like the movie wanted the most comic result. Like So they get the duller Donald Sutherland. And he even says, is like, uh, you know, what do you want me to do? And he's like, I want you to pretend to be an officer. And Donald Sutherland says, I'd rather be a civilian, sir. Like He doesn't even want to pretend to be an officer, but he's told, you know, walk slow, look dumb, act stupid. And so he does. But yeah, it, it, it makes no sense. There's 11 other guys who would have been a better choice. And so at first, Don Sutherland's character, Pinkley here, is kind of kind of like a, a dummy. Like at some point, Franco uh, it says as much like, this guy's, this character's stupid, everybody. And so, but then he starts like getting into it, right? And he's like, you know, started to walk like a general. In fact, at some point he goes, uh, they're very pretty, Colonel, very pretty, but can they fight? Like, you know, really hamming it up. And of course, the other Dirty Dozen openly cackling at this, <laughs> blowing their cover right out of the water. And then Pinkley walks up to one of Breed's soldiers and he goes, where you from, son? And the soldier very happily responds, Madison City, Missouri, sir. And then Pinkley's smile disappears, shakes his head and goes, never heard of it. And then you see the very happy soldier crestfallen at the general. Suppose the general had never heard of his his uh, hometown. I don't know why, David, but I, at this moment, I was like, God, I'm so sick of this fucking dumb scene. I laughed so hard at that never heard of it line. <laughs> so my notes, I wrote down all capital letters, damn it, because I did not want to like this scene, but instead, I loved it. Very funny. He's good. And then we go from there to... Bloodslaw, you know, he's got to hit the head. He's got to use the latrine. And so these two soldiers follow him in. They want answers like, who are you? Where, do you? where are you from? What are you doing here? Let's see your dog tags. And even Vladislav is like, I ate him. And that's pretty great. So they beat him down. But again, this could have been a fight scene. This could have been like, and I, it makes me wonder how, like, how much further down the road are we from fight choreography? Like, when do we get to see this become an action piece in its own? But instead, it's just like Charles Bronson gets beat up. And it's like, well, that's not even, that shouldn't be Charles Bronson then. Yeah, when those two dudes approached Bronson, I was like, you two dudes just made the worst mistake of your life because Bronson's going to tune you up. He's going to light you up like a Philly blunt. You know what I mean, David? I do know what you mean. <laughs> instead, he just gets beaten down. One of the dudes is named Blake, by the way. 
And uh, shout out to Blake. I think they overdubbed his voice. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because one character talks like this. Hey, settle down now. Like, I, I think, did he have like a thick Irish brogue? And they're like, wait, hold on. He's supposed to be an American soldier. Clint Walker, get over here and ADR his voice. I don't know. <laughs> or you know what? If if that is how deep that dude's voice is, um, my God, man, my God. But after the uh, scene with the general, I wanted to give one more shout out to Reisman. Colonel Breed comes over and he goes, look, as far as I'm concerned, you're a disorganized, undisciplined clown. I'm going to make it my business to run you out of this army. And then Reisman, right, he's a shit, right? So Reisman goes, I owe you an apology, Colonel. I always thought you were a cold, unimaginative, tight-lipped officer, but you're really quite emotional, aren't you? Starting an insult with I owe you an apology, that is a gold standard move. You know what I mean? That's a classic, like, you know, David, I owe you an apology. People said you weren't fit to eat with pigs, but now I see that you are. You know what I mean? Like, that, <laughs> that <is> like... <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. So they jump out of that plane, I guess. That scene was real short. And now training has come to a close. Reisman decides it's time to reward the Dirty Dozen with a graduation party of sorts. And that's going to mean a truckload of sex workers out in the middle of nowhere. Colonel Breed gets wind of this, and that's the last straw. Time to bust up this camp and find out what this top secret outfit is all about. So the beginning of this scene is when you see Trini Lopez like happily playing what sounds like a pretty contemporary song on a guitar. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. But uh, it was... I really wanted Reisman to pick up the guitar Pluto style and smash it into the ground because he did not seem like he was enjoying it. Also, the song was way too cheerful for this murder squad, right? It just You mean that uh, top 15 hit on the adult contemporary charts, Bramble Bush by Trini Lopez? Yeah, that's right. Is that what it, is that what it was? I looked it up to see if it was nominated for her because that, that felt like that was the kind of thing they slipped in. It's like, look, we got appeal to everybody. Let's put in an Oscar-nominated song. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a bunch of yikes. And so Reisman gathers the dirty dozen in one of the MP's huts, right? He's like, we'll do it in your guy's bunk. And you see, David, what are the walls of this bunk covered in? Uh, covered in smut. They're covered in like pinups and naked ladies. Yeah, I, here's what I don't get. You see this a lot in like military movies. I've never served in the armed forces myself. I, I do occasionally steal, like to steal a little valor, but I'll, I'll come clean <laughs> and say I did not. <laughs> I'll pay for those donuts now, eventually. You see this frequently, like that they'll have... Uh, you know, the walls are like covered in this kind of thing. I know, I I do not get this, David. Look, I get that dudes and uh, dudes of low character, like and especially maybe uh, dudes who are like uh, miles away from their, their love interest or potential love interest want to put some uh, cheesecake photos on the walls, right? But maybe where only you can see it because if the entire bunk is covered in like smut, so it's like, oh, cool, we all got boners. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're all horned up all the time. The end result... I mean, it just, it just seems like a recipe for, like, just being in a, uh, a boner-filled room. Yeah, there's no place to have a sincere talk in this room. because And even some of them were, like, drawn. Like, man, what kind of a psychopath do you have to be to draw a naked lady to get your jollies? Like, can we just get out of this room, please? I think the straight man doth protest too much, possibly. <laughs> but anyway, so they're like, oh, here comes a surprise. And they wheel in this covered truck. And it took me a couple of beats before I go, oh, no, those are women. Yeah. He's bringing them women. He does not let them bathe, right? They're still the dirty dozen. Right. And as soon as these women walk in, uh, you can see on their face, like, oh, they're f one of them even says, like, they're filthy. But seriously, let these dudes bathe. All you're doing is you're punishing these women. Yeah, like, the smell in that room, You, it, it must have been visible. You must have been able to see the smell in that room and, like... Uh, there has to have been some, you know, uh, maybe some self-esteem issues with those guys where they're like, oh, now I'm embarrassed. I don't want them to see me like this. I'm just going to uh, drink a lot and then cry. Like, who knows? That might have been a little too revealing. 
But David, with this many sex workers around, uh, I had I had one question in mind. I don't know about we got you. Oh, it was that question. Where the fuck is Maggot? Yes, let's find out immediately where Maggot is. Good, he's up in the tower. Yeah, Maggot is on guard duty, and that's not a coincidence. Uh, Reisman was like, "We the only way to do this is Maggot's on guard duty. Otherwise, uh, women might get murdered." Which again, the fact that Reisman is okay with that, it just shows that like there's a reason why this guy's still a major, even though he's. Uh, well, I mean, I guess he's 42. He looks a lot older. <laughs> I mean, he just kind of wants to thumb his nose at the orders here. But seriously, get rid of Maggot. Like, right before you're about to be shipped off, have him slip on a bar of soap that also includes a knife. Just get rid of him. <laughs> but anyway, he doesn't. The Dirty Dozen, when presented with their dates for the evening, they all are just kind of, it's like a high, high school dance, right? Boys on one side, girls on the other. Finally, Franco walks over and he's like, let's dance. And the girl's like, there's no music. And he's like, start humming. And then we cut back later and there is some music, right? And everyone's just having like a very kind of sweet dance. Was the implication there that like, oh, these dirty dozen are all polite gentlemen, or do you think they fucked later on? I assume they fucked later on, but I, I think the movie actually, you know, the movie handled it very well because I remember watching this when I was younger and being like, man, they must have danced the night away. So they have their party, you know, they have their fun. And then the next day, Colonel Breed and his men, they come invading the camp because they, they want answers now. Again, this could have been an action sequence unless you count Reisman sneaking around with a full magazine that he shoots at Colonel Breed to get them out of there. Like, let's build some tension here if you're an action movie. And this whole scene is weird. Uh, but Wadislaw was like, wait, those are the two dudes who beat me up, tuned me up in the bathroom. I thought Reisman sent them, but I guess they're with Breed. I got this Reisman guy all wrong. And you get some more team unity here as no one talks when... Colonel Breed is like, you know, this this is over. The, the jig is up here. Like, what's your what's your name? And he's like, my name is number 12 or whatever. Like, they don't, they just, just give this dude shit. But then Reisman, coming back from wherever the hell he was, I guess a trip into town, he sees what's going on and he's like, oh, I'm going to, I gotta, I'm gonna take care of this. You know, he climbs up to, you know, to a point of elevation, shoots Breed. But before that, so, you know, like you said, Wadislaw and the rest of the dozen, they coordinate. They're like, oh, those are the two guys. All right, on my word, let's get him. And so they, at some point, they rush Breed, and then, coincidentally, there's Reisman shooting. He's like, all right, knock it off, everybody, stop it. And then he tells Bowron and the and the men to go grab the guns from the from this invading army. Thank God Reisman was there. What was the plan after that? It's like, hey, we're going to attack this commanding officer and then hope for the best. Maybe in the back of their minds, they're like, at some point, this isn't going to work, and we're just we're going to be executed again, so why not, you know, I don't know, just fucking go for it. <laughs> One of the things that got his Colonel Breed so riled up is the state of this dirty dozen, the fact that they're so dirty, right? They're unshaven, they smell, their uniforms are a mess. And when, as we, one thing we know about Colonel Breed is he's very neat, right? He's a very neat and proper military man. And so he's like, I order you men to shave. And he's like, I'm not going to shave. And he's like, oh, yeah? All right, boys. Dry shave him, which was such a such a weird threat. All right, boys, whip him or something. Be like, dry shave him. <laughs> like, if I was a soldier and ordered to do that, my first response would have been like, I'm sorry, what? But no, they're like, oh, we knew this was an option. When I woke up today, I knew that I might have to dry shave a man. There's something, yeah, I don't know if I could follow that because it's really just a few, you know, it's a few steps away from, all right, men, jack him off. And I'm like, no, thank you. Look, David, if you're a PE coach... And you want to know what to yell at your young students, right? Your young, uh, let's say you're a middle school football coach or, or something like that. Or you're just a, a phys ed teacher. What are you going to watch? You're going to watch Full Metal Jacket? No, David. Because the drill sergeant, that, is, that movie is uh, too filthy. You need to watch Dirty Dozen. 
because there's a lot of good things that a phys ed coach can yell at their <laughs> students who are not doing what, what they want them to do. A lot of good things where it's like, this is not too terrible thing to say to a young person. Because he's like, uh, he's like, come on, move it, move it. And he goes, what are you, something special? <laughs> we got to wait all day for you? <laughs> Which I got to say, what are you, something special? It's cutting, but it's not devastating. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's a good checkmate because yes or no is the wrong answer. You know, it's a real good, it's a real good gotcha. So you're saying the scenario plays out this way it could be like, what do you, what do you think you are? Something special? Yes, sir, I am. And then the phys ed coach goes, "Good for you." <laughs> like, uh, that's right. And let no one ever take that spark. Shine on, you crazy diamond. Because <laughs> he loves uh, whoever sings that song, Pink Floyd. He loves the Floyd. However, word gets back to the brass about. These hijinks and the fact that Reisman did shoot a live gun at Colonel Breed. Because, uh, look, Breed's a snitch. He's got snitch written all over him, right? Mm. So we're, we're back at headquarters. We get more in Berg 9. Reisman gets dressed down. And General Denton threatens to shut down the whole mission. But Reisman makes a deal. If the Dirty Dozen can win the annual Wilderness Games, their camp won't get bulldozed to build the new mall after... Oh, wait, that's not it. Hold on, hold on. It's if the Dirty Dozen can capture Colonel Breed's group in divisional maneuvers, they're off the hook. Breed agrees, and we get a very long sequence where yada, 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 that doesn't capture Breed's team and win the bet. David, I get that we see that Dirty doesn't really coalesce as a team here, mm-hmm. and they do expertly pull off this mission. I also think you could have chopped this sequence out. I also think this could have been a written exam. Like, I mean, is this mm-hmm. even action? <laughs> you know, we're, we're at the midpoint of the movie. This is, you know, the second half of the movie hinges on getting this right. This should have felt like more. It was, I, it was entertaining. But I need action in this action movie. Again, some more really funny stuff here from Ernest Borgnine. Because, you know, he's like, he's kind of a party party general. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like at some point, one of his little aides comes in. He's like, yes, sir. And he's like, oh, Sergeant, more ice. <laughs> like he just wants, like, freshen up this drink also. I don't know. George Kennedy, again, looking super young and super like, oh, I, I have an idea. Like it's just, it's so funny to see him in this like nerd role. Because I remember him from like, you know, Cool Hand Luke. Uh, and yeah, also Naked Gun, but uh, but still. But I mean, the shit, I think Cool Hand Luke was also 67. So like the same year, he's, no. I want to say, he's playing a heavy and then he's playing like this, yeah, more of a pencil pusher. Let me look that up right now. 67, that year. Wow. Great, great year for George Kennedy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he'd call this role a great, I like to admit it though. The year his wife died. Ah, uh, David, why? <laughs> God damn it. David, we agreed. Only only fun facts from now on. Oh, well, you didn't see how she died. Okay, that's uh, that's not cool. All right, so David, so we do see them going about their business here in this training exercise, and at some point uh, when the the crew shows up, you know, Breed is on the lookout because basically they're like, hey, if the Dirty Dozen captures Breed and his entire like uh, command unit, we're off the hook and we get to continue with our mission. And so if Breed hates Reisman so much. Breed should be on the lookout for any kind of like, all right, how are these dudes going to sneak in? And so the Dirty Dozen begin their operation by discussing their plan as loudly as possible. Also, David, they're doing some maneuvers here and bombs are going off all around them. I remember my grandfather, who's a World War II veteran, could not hear out of one of his ears. Did that entire generation come home deaf? Just like, my God. I mean, every time there's a war, is it just like nothing but deaf survivors? Because the, the amount of noise... That just this was even a training maneuver. It's not an actual battle. It was insane. Yeah, of the you know X number of people who came back with hearing issues, how many of those were suffered during training exercises? Like you know, there's a moment where they they pretend that Posey's hurt to sneak him in so they can call an ambulance, 
and no one is really regarding this guy who's injured on the, you know, quote unquote injured on the ground. Like they don't know. It's a training exercise and there's no compassion for like, oh boy, I'm really sorry this happened during a completely superfluous thing. Like this is just standard operating procedure in the military. Yeah, I guess so. And so the Dirty Dozen's plan is to fake an accident, then have one of the, uh, an injured party, which is Posey, uh, get carted to Colonel Breed's headquarters. And then an ambulance would show up to help the injured soldier. But the ambulance, of course, is also full of the Dirty Dozen. So bingo, bingo, bongo. The Dirty Dozen are now inside Colonel Breed's headquarters. But the general, General Warden, decides to, he wants to get a, a first-person perspective of these training maneuvers. So he goes to visit Colonel Breed. And when the Dirty Dozen start to show up pieces at a time, General Warden's no idiot, right? And so as soon as he starts like noticing these men, he starts getting like a, okay, all right, kind of a look at his face. And he does that about nine more times. Like he's like, oh, okay. Oh, now I see what's happening. And then later when he leaves, he's like, I got to go, Colonel, but enjoy your day. <laughs> he sees the ambulance pass him. And again, he gives him a look like, oh, I think I know what's up. So along for the ride is like a, a impartial observer is George Kennedy, his character. I'm going to call him George Kennedy. And he's riding along, kind of holding on to the outside of the ambulance. And I don't remember who's driving the ambulance, but it's a couple of dirty dozen people. And they kind of give a look over like, hey, George Kennedy's hanging on the side. Let's uh, drive into a tree so he gets knocked off the ambulance. And he does, which is a dick move. I don't know if in 1967 they were rolling in the goddamn miles when this happened. But I was like, yeah, okay, these guys are bastards. We get it. They suck. Well, I think it was helpful to see George Kennedy come back, you know, when they finally do capture the base. Like, he hobbles over to the window and he is just a pig in shit. He is, is so happy for the Dirty Dozen. But like, it took me the second viewing. As a matter of fact, I was like, yeah, why did they do that? Just being pieces of shit. But no, I guess like, you know, if they show up with George Kennedy hanging off the side of the ambulance, then the jig would have been up. So like, I get it. But at the same, yeah, that is the most Dirty Dozen oh, way to get rid of him. I didn't even think about that. That's smart. If I was knocked off of a moving car, I wouldn't be like, oh, I, I, I gotta go see this. I'd be like, fuck these dudes. But yeah, he runs over to to see the uh, the big reveal. And sure enough, when the Dirty Dozen are like, surprise, Colonel Breed, we win. The Wilderness Games are ours, and the nerd camp, Lambda Lambda Lambda, wins the <laughs> college games or whatever. They all begin donkey-style cackling, like, ah, <laughs> It's just like, hey, dudes, back off. This guy's still a colonel, okay? I just There's no way he took that easy when they're just like, just like Dave Chappelle laughing at one of his own uh, terrible transphobic jokes, just like slapping their knees with a microphone, just loving, loving their own little victory here. Yeah, meanwhile, Breed is altering the plans for the mission. <laughs> like, all right, I guess you're jumping into the ocean. Yeah, Breed's like calling the Germans, hey, you Nazi bricks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, we forgot to mention that the uh, the Nazi, did you mention the Nazi castle they want to invade is where the Nazis go to have like sex? Uh, no, I didn't mention that. But yeah, it's a little chateau where they go to uh, plow. Uh, so Reisman and the Dozen celebrate their victory against Breed and have one last supper before their mission. They go over their 16-point plan for success several more times, including one last time in the plane before the drop. Yeah, so here's a little bit of, of, of their plan. And that goes on. We're not going to do the full thing. And then at the end, David, so you, you get the, the plan here, what everyone's going to do. And we go through it so many times that when later on when we see the plan, I tried to remember it but could not. So not that great or whatever, even though they, get, we, they run through this entire thing like three times. But at the end, David, he's like... Uh, this is their point of escape. He's like, where's Donald Duck going to be? He's like, oh, Donald Duck's down at the crossroads with the machine gun. And Reisman's like, and he better not be asleep or we'll all be in trouble. David, I, I tried to find out what the significance of Donald Duck is because all the other, you know, they have a little scale model of the Chateau. 
they have little army soldiers to represent, uh, you know, men kind of like you, they have so many of these little war scenes in movies, even like a game of Thrones where you're, you're looking at the battlefield, but the Donald duck, they had a little Donald duck figurine. And for the life of me, David, according to the internet, no one knows why that was there. It, and it's even brought to, you know, it, it, they literally have Donald duck with them when they set up on the road later in the, at the Chateau, like, this is a mystery for the ages. I have no fucking idea why Donald Duck is there. The only thing I could tell is it's maybe what they call posy or something like that. I mean, because he's like, Donald Duck's at the crossroads and he better not be asleep. At first I was like, oh, Donald Duck, maybe that's their name for like uh, the heavy artillery weapon that they're putting right there or something like that. But I don't know. It, it is confusing. But yeah, later on, Posey brings it for luck. And Bravos is like, uh, hey, uh, I don't believe in stuff like this. Do you? And I was like, believe in what? Donald Duck? <laughs> but he's like, no, I guess he brought it for luck or something like that. I don't know. But it, it is confusing. Yeah. But this whole thing, you know, the, they're going over the plan. It's very meticulous. I like that they're letting us in. I like that they're saying, we're not letting you leave until we go over this. And like, they're even doing it on the plane. This jumping out of the plane sequence, I, you know, I hate to bring it up again. This could have been action. But we just, we go from the plane to, oh, we made it to the ground. Obviously, in that time period, as we'll get to in a second, some dramatic stuff happened. But uh, we just sort of miss it. I guess because they... They go through this like rote memorization of it. They're all kind of bored by it. I think maybe it gives you a sense that uh, they know this plan and it's going to work, right? Like that they know this plan backwards and forwards and it seems kind of easy. So they might have some success at it, which as we're going to see later, things go uh, sideways. So we're, we're going to make our way to the Chateau, but we're already down to 11 because Jimenez died during the jump. Wadislaw and Reisman pose as German soldiers to gain access to the rooms with Pinkley posing as a driver and standing guard out front. Wadislaw's grappling hook training finally pays off, and Jefferson and Maggot climb the rope and enter through the window. So, so far, we're, we're starting the mission. I think this is like the first four steps. Yeah, and so Jefferson and somebody else shows up, and Reisman's like, where are you? We've been waiting for you. He's like, we're looking for Jimenez. We found him in a tree. Neck is broken. Again, really confusing that we just, this happened off camera. Was that scene cut? I, I, I truly don't know. Like, there's so much, like, you know, like we talked about at the very, very beginning of the movie, you know, we don't know... What he's in jail for, we know there's some mysterious circumstances. So I guess him in is, is just supposed to be this this mysterious person that we don't know. Yeah, I, I do not get it. There is, though, maybe like a little callback here. Because remember when we first met him in as they took his guitar strings away so he wouldn't hang himself. And here he gets caught up on his parachute rope and he hangs himself. So he does kind of hang himself with his own strings. Look at that. The prophecy is fulfilled. Oh, that's grim. Man, speaking of grim, David... So Reisman, who I did not know was going to go on the mission, but I guess he is, he and Wadislaw are now wearing some Nazi uniforms, and they stroll up to uh, where the, the little guard hut is at the, the entrance there, and they're laughing about something back and forth, what the other had to say. And then uh, they subdue the guards, they kill them, and then up comes a car with some, you know, visiting Nazi officers ready to, you know, get their rocks off. They walk up to the guard booth. And Wadislaw walks up, then they hand uh, Wadislaw their papers, and Wadislaw immediately shoots them with a silencer. Now, David, all they know is that they're, they were about to go have a, a night of sex, and instead, the dude who they thought we're only going to see for a second just give them their papers and never see again is murdering them. Mm. David, this happens a lot in these kind of movies, like in Terminator 2, when the security guard turns around and there's his exact double, which he doesn't know is a T-1000. And then he gets spiked through the eye. So his final moments are just like, what the fuck is going on? And then he's dead. Yeah. For some reason, I think this would be like a terrible death. But I don't know, David. Would you rather go in a way where you're like, I don't know what's going on. The next thing you know, you're dead. Or would you rather like, 
No, you're about to die and have a slow death for a month. Oh, man. What the fuck kind of question is this? I don't know. Good questions, David. I I guess my short answer is as long as I don't feel embarrassed or confused. Because that would be the thing with, you know, the T-1000 where my last thought is, what the? Like, I at least want to have some resignation where it's like, okay, this is happening. You know, pulling up to the the guard booth, like, there's a moment of, ah, shit. You know, I, I would at least think, oh, dang, you know, somebody took over. And there's that. But if it's something in- incredible, like, I mean, if you were to turn into a liquid something or other and stab me, that would suck, Mac. I mean, it does seem like there's an advantage to being so confused. You're not even scared about like, you know, like, wait, why is this happening? And the next thing you know, you're just turned off. I think it's why you guys, everyone's got to go make a will right now. Because, you know, you might just be having a good day and then a robot just flips off your switch. And uh, now you don't know who, what are you going to do with all those comic books you amassed? So that's why you got to. Write a will that says, burn it all. I'm just, I'm coming to terms with the fact that, like, I release my bowels when I die. So I don't want to think about, like, just the more humiliating th- aspects of death. Speaking of the dirty dozen, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> so, yeah, on this mission, sure enough, there's Sergeant Bowron, which, again, why is the military police guy who's just sent to watch these dudes, why is he on the mission? I don't know. So part of this mission uh, involves uh, Wadislaw, who's, who's German, by the way, sucks. They walk upstairs and, and Reisman's like, how's your German holding up? And he's like, not good. Because every every time he talks, people are like, whoa, I don't understand your your accent. And then he's like, you know those two guys who walk past me? The two Nazi officers? I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> Which, again, why didn't you practice this or something? I don't know. But anyway, part of the mission involves him throwing a grappling hook to the top of the chateau. Something we saw him practice earlier in the movie, and he sucked at it. Which, David... We had a scene where he practiced a bunch, but now we see him again. And guess what? He still sucks at this. Ideally, there's supposed to be some growth in a motion picture where at the beginning of the movie, he can't quite throw the grappling hook. And then later he triumphs by throwing the grappling hook. But like, we got to sit through this thing in real time. Like, I'm not on the mission. I paid $3 to get into this movie and see this. Like, why am I sitting through this? Yeah, I guess it's supposed to ratchet up the tension. But guess what? There's already tension. We're on a secret mission. I'm tense. So, but you know, he finally gets uh, gets the grappling hook set up, and you know, everybody's climbing up. Uh, here comes Maggot. Here comes Jefferson. And so, Reisman and Wadislaw are going to make their way back into the the party or the main room. And Reisman turns to Wadislaw at one point and is like, "Are you ready for this turkey shoot, Mac? Are you familiar with the term turkey shoot?" A little bit, David. I believe it's when uh, a bunch of turkeys are herded into an area where you just murder them all real quick. That's going to be the second definition. The first definition is, it, well, it's going to be something like that. It's uh, If someone refers to a battle or other conflict as a turkey shoot, they mean that one side is so much stronger or better armed than the other one that the weaker side has no chance of winning at all. So I'm Wadislaw. My commanding officer is telling me this as we're in the fucking building. Like, hey, man, I could use some confidence at this point. Uh, oh, meaning that they're the turkeys? Yes, yeah, we're heading, we are the turkeys heading for the shoot. Oh, I thought he was saying, like, because there's a scene where, you know, these uh, these officers do not see this coming, and so that they're going to be the turkeys, and uh, Reisman and Wassel are going to be the shooters. If if he had said this later, when they've got everybody cornered into the, into the basement, I would have bought that, but this one feels like, hey, I'm going to be sarcastic about our insurmountable odds right now. David, if I have one takeaway from this movie, it's that if I ever have to shoot a turkey... I'm bringing backup. You know what I mean? The way this turkey's going to get the jump on me. But other than Gilpin getting stuck in the ceiling because he had to take over for Jimenez and Pinkley almost blowing his cover, things are going great. So it's the perfect time for Maggot to have a patented religious freak freak out. Maggot sabotages the mission before Jefferson thankfully blows him away. 
The remaining 10 will have to improvise their way out of this one. So this is the moment I definitely remembered from the times I, I caught this movie, you know, halfway through on various cable channels. And yeah, uh, the human red flag flags out. Maggot goes crazy. He just starts like, you know, immediately like goofing around and kind of jumping on a bed. One of the Nazis' attractive girlfriends comes in looking for Wolfgang and Maggot jumps out and he basically kind of mentally tortures her for a while, tells her to scream. She does scream and all the Nazis are like, oh, uh, I guess things are getting a little rough in there, which you have know, tracks because the Nazis are scum and scum say things like that. <laughs> but then, yeah, Maggot stabs her and then starts shooting at Jefferson. Uh, the Nazis hear the gunfire and then they're like, oh, something's going on. Sound the alarm. So, yeah, besides being a piece of shit and a murderer, now Maggot has also pretty much blown the mission. It seems like he's blown the mission, but everything else, you know, for the rest of the movie kind of falls into its own place to where it seems like it's supposed to work. So I wonder if if Reisman's orders to Maggot were just like, cause a distraction. And Maggot was like, I got you, Captain. Like, I can take it from here. It's I almost wish. You know, if if we're doing punch-ups right now, since we're saying this about Maggot from the jump, we're like, this guy is a red flag. This guy is going to be a problem. This guy is at, at the least going to be hard to root for from an audience standpoint. I would have liked something in the background of this movie where Reisman is hip to Maggot's machinations and, like, has a plan in place. He's like, oh, I knew Maggot was going to go crazy. I've got plan B. Let's go from there. Like, something like that would have been very satisfying to me. Yeah, where Maggot like shoots the gun and nothing happens. And then you see Jefferson's got a handful of bullets. He's like, looking for these, Maggot. Yeah. But he he does blow the mission. Now, Gilpin here. So Gilpin, he's like a fill-in for Jimenez. Because Jimenez was supposed to go up the rope. Eight, Jimenez has got a date. And his date was with the radio tower. But Gilpin fills in. And so Gilpin's foot goes right through the roof. And now he can't get the foot out. Why? I, but, I mean, how cheaply made is this centuries-old chateau? It's like balsa wood in that ceiling. And like... Yeah, he struggles with that thing, let's just say to death, because I believe he's still there uh, when the when the stuff goes down. And like, yeah, I guess he's just there forever. That's what I'm getting at is because, so Gilpin just like launches some grenades up at the tower. And I guess he can't get out in time because it didn't seem like it was a suicide mission here from Gilpin. The Gilpin was like sacrificing himself to blow up the tower. But yeah, we never see him again. So I guess it is. Which the shitty thing, David, is... That could have been a moment of redemption for any of these other characters. Like any of these other characters who were trying to give an arc to, making a sacrifice play is not something you would have expected out of one of these prisoners when we first meet them. So the fact that redemption comes to Gilpin, a character who I did not even remember was in the movie, <laughs> is is nuts. But yeah, so I guess Gilpin is dead and now we're down to nine, the dirty nine. That means things are off and running. Here we go, David. It's the first. It's the final. It's a pretty great, famous action set piece that we're going to call the going gets dirty because now uh the trap has been sprung prematurely but the dirty doesn't got to see it through so now it's guns blazing we gotta take out some german officers that's right gilpin's blowing up the radio tower which nobody else on the dozen seems thrilled with but that's going to alarm the germans and they're going to scramble to the bomb shelter in the cellar where they also keep all of their explosives so it's time for the dozen to choke their ventilation shafts with every grenade they've got this is going to be my first markout moment when the Germans think they're they're doing the right thing. They they all get herded into the uh, into the cellar, and so Reisman's like, "Well, they got to breathe, don't they?" And so they just start loading up the ventilation shafts with grenades, and you see like the POV from the Germans in the cellar as the grenades just start dropping. First markout moment, like just that feeling of dread, that feeling of like, 
oh fuck we <laughs> whoops we've done it now uh it was tremendously satisfying yeah so i got a sense that the germans going down to this bunker was not part of the plan but that Reisman, when he noticed, like, oh, they're next to some explosives, this isn't terrible, let's lock them in here. But yeah, David, I'm right there with you. Uh, I did not mark out, but the shot of the the hands clawing at the grenades, because they drop the grenades down these ventilation shafts, but they're kind of stuck in these grates. And so they cannot get the grenades through the grates, but they're still clawing at them. But yeah, it's kind of a, it's a terrifying desperation that, uh, you know, you weren't, I was not expecting in that moment, but no, it was a, it was a really... Kind of a devastating shot, even for some terrible people. So the guards start to come out of the guard hut, and Pinkley's stationed out front after, I guess, kind of a humorous encounter where he uh, chain smoke, chain lights another Nazi cigarette. Pinkley starts mowing down people, but then he gets mowed down. And for the rest of the movie, everyone who passes Pinkley's body has to like, stop and look at it for a second, I guess because we're sad that an innocent dullard like Pinkley is dead, but I don't know, man. I didn't feel it. Also, all these deaths are bloodless, so Pinkley dying... You're like a gunshot and you just cut to him like going, oh, like doing kind of a dumb face and falling to the ground. It just doesn't, I don't know. But he's dead. And so now we are down to what, eight? Uh, I'm going to say eight, I think, at this point. Yeah. A few other a few other moments that I really liked out of this sequence. You know, the radio tower blows and that starts, uh, there's a siren, you know, going off. Eh, 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 so everybody's got to rush down to the cellar. And so then Bowron shoots the siren. And I guess there was only one siren for this entire chateau. That was pretty great. That seems like a very easy mission for Bowron. But then you've got uh, the rest of the dozen, the remaining dozen. They're meeting in the the foyer, the lobby. I don't know, whatever you call the main room of the, of the chateau. And they're kind of trying to figure out where they go from here. Man, they've got this this whole plan down to coordinated pants removal. Wadislaw and Reisman show up. They want to get out of their German outfits. So there's Jefferson and some other dude pulling the pants off of them. Uh, lickety split. It's little touches like that that I really appreciate where it's like you've got your stuff down even to the smallest detail. Uh, I really like that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, And then the dirty dozen are like, hey, we got to get outside and kill these Nazis because now they're all huddled down in this uh, bunker. So we got to find the ventilation towers. And they're like, well, what do we do with these prisoners? Because now they this chateau is in France. And so the staff of the chateau are all French. And they got a couple German officers there with them, too. What is the response here? I think Reisman's orders are feed the French and kill the Germans, which that's a tattoo. That's a that's just a great uh, lifeline right there. And I don't remember who's talking to Vladek, but Vladek, again, a forgettable, like, oh, who's, who the fuck is Vladek? He gets tasked with doing this. And I think the, the guy's like, you heard the orders, do it already. But we never see what happens. Do you think he did it? Man, I don't know, because we see Vladek later in a... In a place that is not the foyer where we left him last so i get the sense that he made the fatal mistake of letting everybody go and that bit him in the ass later on but yeah i don't we're, we're developing a character that we, we're just now meeting yeah and vladek uh does get shot in the head later so i think we're down to seven and so then they find the ventilation shafts i guess where this uh underground bunker ventilates and like you said they threw some grenades down there in them so Reisman's like hey bowron get some gasoline and bowron's like some gasoline are you sure because he's like i'm gonna we're already using grenades. You want to pour gasoline all over these trapped prisoners? And Reisman's like, you want to ask Pinkley and Vladek? Now get going. Meaning like, you want to ask the dudes they just killed? Fuck these people. And it is like a moment where, you know, you're like, oh, okay. Like there's a reason that Reisman is in this position. He is cold-blooded. You know, he's not like a 100% straight-laced honorable man who just doesn't get along with authority. He's kind of fucked up. And that's like a little moment where you get a little sense of like, oh, he's fucked up. He wants to Make sure these people are, are capital D dead. He'll burn them alive. Well, it's a good callback to the beginning of the movie when it's like, how do you exceed your orders? Like, well, this is how. 
And then he's like, uh, Franco, you know, find us a truck out of here. And so Franco starts like looking around for a truck and he's like, uh, and Franco's like, hey, can you believe these guys? They keep all these things locked. And it's like, God damn it, Franco, fucking stop complaining. I thought we we're going to get like a moment here where Franco redeems himself. It's the same old Franco being like, why do I got to do everything? You know, it just, it's like, when is this guy going to snap to? When is this guy going to be thankful that he's almost done with this? So Jefferson is going to blow the grenades and the whole palace is going to go up in a fireball. But Jefferson gets gunned down by a sneaky German and we're down to the dirty six. Lever and Sawyer. Oh, by the way, Lever and Sawyer, everybody. Uh, They get blown up in a boat. Then Bravos and presumably Posey get gunned down. So I guess we're down to the dirty two. Then Franco gets shot with a buzzer beater and we're left with Reisman, Bowerin, and the dirty Vladislaw. Vladislaw is rewarded by being sent back to the army, but he's alive for now, so I guess we're calling that a win. Yeah, and this is the uh, the end of the movie, David. We The action here, I mean, there's a point where, like, everyone's firing at everything. It is really crazy. And, I mean, the action itself, like the fighting, it's just kind of shooting, and it's, it's kind of perfunctory. I think the standout moment here of the movie, the Jefferson's death, what Jefferson needs to do... Because the, the trap is set, right? These This underground bunker is now full of grenades and gasoline. It's ready to blow. And so what Reisman orders Jefferson to do is to pull the pins on, on three grenades and then run as fast as he can, boop, 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 and as he runs past the ventilation shafts, maybe three or four, uh, throw them in there and then get out of there because this thing's going to blow. Now, Jim Brown, David, is a former NFL player. So the scene here where he's like blowing up targets while he runs, he's kind of doing, I mean, it's almost like a little bit of a football move. Did you get that sense? Kind of like when The Rock in some of his earlier movies would like work in his wrestling moves into it. Or were you just like, no, he just, he's an actor who's running. In earlier viewings, it's funny, you're you're unlocking a memory that I had forgotten about. But you're absolutely right. Like, much like in the rundown when The Rock does the rock bottom and you're like, hell yeah. Like, this was sort of this, like, I had to imagine those, that same feeling of like, go Jim Brown, go. Like, there there is something to that. Absolutely. But Jefferson, he's a guy that's been pretty wrongfully arrested here basically he's just like he was like sick of shit and he fought back and then that got uh, him thrown in military prison and when they were like hey why do you want to it's like no i'm gonna give you a chance to get out of here and, and fight some nazis he's like man that's that's your war all right uh the black experience i got enemies right here next to me and he he's kind of like your him and Wadislaw are like your your heroes i guess uh, of this squad and even though i knew this death was coming when jefferson dies it just because it's their little moment of like triumph here and for him to get gunned down, you know, three steps away from possibly his freedom, it's a well-done scene because I definitely, I felt that right there. When he died, I was like, man, this is a, I'm feeling the impact of his death. Yeah, you feel cheated. You feel like, man, he was there. Like, he did it. You know, if you flip this around, a more action-focused action movie would have those gunshots come before he successfully drops off the grenades. And you're like, oh, no, is he going to be able to make it? But he makes it to the to the ventilation shafts in time. He pulls the pin and, you know sacrifices himself there would have been some something like that so to have him do the thing he's supposed to do do it successfully that whole place goes up and then have him shot it 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 makes you angry at it makes you angry at nazis believe it or not mac blake but it it makes you angry at the movie still an effective death though i definitely felt jefferson not a mark moment because i was sad but uh yeah it it is well done also franco does find a car it would be like a uh, a car you buy for your action figures where you can stick all your action figures because it's like a tank but also a soldier carrier and it's moving really slow and then reisman turns around and he sees that uh it's connected to a piece of artillery and franco did not unhook it right it's sort Mm -hmm. of it's like pulling his gun on a trailer cannon and reisman turns around and gives franco like a dirty like are you fucking kidding me you didn't unhook that thing and Franco like stops for a moment, and then he like gets like, oh, I'll, I'll go do it right now. But again, 
there's never a, there's no redemption for Franco. Like he'd never like learn. He's a fuck up gold bricker from start to finish. I mean, yeah, he eventually like went along with the plan, but there was they never gave him a moment where Frank Franco never made good in this movie. Well, because again, you know, doing doing punch ups in the moment. There's also a moment where they don't know why they can't move, and and then it's revealed that there's a they're hooked to a giant gun. It would have been satisfying to, you know, for Reisman to try to drive away. It was like, ah, you did it again. You screw up. You've, you've got us hooked onto something. But they reveal, oh, it's this giant gun that we can use. The fact that they unhook it instead of using it for action, it's symbolic of everything that this movie does in terms of, hey, you know, we've got an opportunity for action. We're just not going to capitalize on that opportunity for action. Oh, you know what? I, I probably should go on record. We were, we were doing so much talking. This is going to be my second mark out moment. The blowing up of the palace is so satisfying from a movie standpoint, from a technical standpoint. Like, you know, they blew the crap out of that place. Uh, that's going to be my second mark out moment. Real quick question, David. The two dudes who were trying to escape in a boat, was that part of the plan or were they just like, let us get the fuck out of here? I think they were improvising. I, I think they even made mention, but I hell if I remember what it was, but I think they saw that Reisman and, and the guys wouldn't be able to get away. So they're like, Let's take the boat and meet him there or something to that effect. Like it was definitely an improv improvisation, but I guess the Jerry's were had the jump on them. Yeah, because the way this plan worked is after they blew up the chateau, they were just supposed to like march into the wilderness and hopefully the D-Day invasion went well and then meet up with allied troops. Mm -hmm. Just like bump into them, which I mean, who's <laughs> to say they wouldn't have gotten shot? I mean, I guess they didn't get shot because we, we see him later in the hospital. Speaking of the hospital, cut to the hospital where we see that. Reisman, Vladislaw, and of course, uh, Sergeant Bowron are now recovering in various comical casts. And in come the generals. And they're like, hey, you did a fine job, Major. I'll see you around. You did a good job, soldier. Hurry up and get well. We need more men like you out there. And it, it's funny because this is a different kind of war movie. This movie is definitely not a rah rah go USA movie. You know, this, because this movie definitely just thumb its nose at being ordered around by generals, right? In fact, mm -hmm. Wadislaw even says, like, killing generals could get to be a habit with me, right? Because he's like, I want to fucking kill these dudes because we did this mission and all they're like, it's like, hey, good job, fellas. Like, no sense of the loss that an on-the-ground combat soldier would actually experience. Mm -hmm. However, I feel like this movie pulls its punch just a little bit because it's like, oh, we can't leave with such a kind of fuck-the-army message. And so we get their names at the end of the movie, Franco, Vladek, Jefferson, Pinkley, and then some voiceover comes in and it says... They lost their lives in the line of duty. They lost their lives in the line of duty. Who's talking? And now you know the rest of the story. Because now you're, I know you're supposed to be like, you know, saluting these brave soldiers or whatever. Is that the message of the movie? Yeah, this movie kind of wants it both ways where, you know, it wants to feed off of the patriotism that you feel by seeing a military movie, but it's not necessarily leaving you with that rah-rah that feeling. Yeah, it, this, is a, this is a tricky one. Yeah, it's like patriotism sucks also. And I'll proudly stand <laughs> up next to you. Well, David, that has been The Dirty Dozen. All right, David, how many mark-out moments did you have in this thing? I had two. We saved them for the last 10 minutes of the movie. How about you? I had two as well. One of those, of course, coming with the shika dig 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 the final punch <laughs> of a speed bag. David, is this someone's favorite movie? Do you think? Mac, I think this is the favorite movie of dads and grads. And by grads, I mean that's short for granddads. This is going to be a very older man movie, but hey, I'm not going to argue with him. This is a fucking fantastic movie. Yeah, this movie is great. It's very well made. A lot of aspects of it like should not work. You know, when you look at it and you're like, oh, this movie, uh, you know, kind of what we're saying, like some of these characters don't have arcs. 
the villain in this movie. I guess it's Telly Savalas, but not really. But you know, it uh, it, it it works. It, it's uh, very entertaining. All right, David, time for punch ups. Like everyone knows, we're the ultimate script doctors. I shouldn't even have to say it. But David, how would you punch up this movie? How would you how would you make it a little bit better? There's a lot of little things you can do. I've been touching on stuff throughout the movie. Um, tighten it up. You know, lose half a dozen of these people. But I think the things I'm focusing on more. Man, how do you solve a problem like Savalas? You know, he's Telly Savalas, the actor, is terrific in this movie. I I can't say enough good things about him. You know, there's probably a, a handful of really really good performances in this movie, and that's what makes the movie work really. But like. From the from the opening moments that we see him, you're forced to root for this guy you clearly do not like. And you know he's going to be on this mission. You want to see the mission succeed, but you could take or leave him. And I, I'm wondering, like, what do you do with this? You know, is the, do we handle him the same way that we handled Riddick? Where, you know, he's a scary person. He's a scary character, but he's not your big worry. Your big worry is those, you know, those creatures out there. So, I mean, is that the way to frame this? Where it's like, hey, I'm plenty scary but let's get over that real quick and worry about the Nazis. Like, I, I really don't want to lose Savalas, but I want to give him more than he had. Yeah, he's basically like Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs. He is a guy that like fucks everything up, except with Mr. Blonde, they you start with their like assignment, like, oh, you guys are going to do this bank job. And then you just cut to him being a psycho. With this movie, Maggot tells you, I'm a psycho about 30 times before he actually psychos out. So it just, it feels like you see it coming and you're just kind of mad at them for not taking care of it. Yeah. So that that'll be my first that'll be my first main punch up. Uh, my second one's gonna have to do with that last line in the movie, that Wadislaw line, where he says, uh, "Killing generals could get to be a habit with me." What if that's the sequel? What if it's just him? It's a vengeance tale, and he's going up the chain of command. He goes, uh, you know, he's got to make it all the way up to Breed. Oh, that would be amazing, David. Did you know there was a sequel to this movie? What? Yeah, it was a 1985 made-for-TV movie called The Dirty Dozen. Next mission. It's got Lee Marvin and Rose Borgnine in it, and that those are the only people you've heard of. Lee Marvin on the cover, because it's 1985. Okay, what is that, uh, 18 years after the original? Yeah. And Lee Marvin just has that look like, why am I making this movie? Like, just, I mean, looking at the cast, I don't recognize that, any of these people. I see Ken Wall and Larry Wilcox. Ken Wall was Wise Guy from TV's Wise Guy, and Larry Wilcox was John from Chips. Like I said, oh, I know John from Chips. California Highway Patrol. Sonny Landham from Hip Predator. Okay, Come on, Mac. You, you do know these people, I guess. Uh, so that, okay, yeah. So I'd make a, another sequel. I'd make like an Elseworlds about uh, Wattis Law. Dave, one of the things that I would fix is in the Dirty Dozen itself, the unit here, too many white dudes. And I say that because there's too many white dudes who look alike. There was about like, I don't know, five of these guys, four or five that I, at the end of the movie, I knew nothing about them because they just mm -hmm. kind of blended together. I mean, you got Posey, he's like a bigger dude, right? So I remembered him. And then Bravos, I don't know, I mean, there was some line about somebody being Greek. I don't know if that's him or not, but he had a mustache. So I remembered mustache. So you can't just stock the rest of the team with forgettable white dudes, all right? If you're going to do that, you got to make them stand out a little bit more like, oh, look at uh, uh, old uh, pointy years over here. Or look at eye patch. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah. you just you can't just have the same guys. You're gonna I'm I'm not gonna be able to keep track of them. Also, you know, as we mentioned, give some redemption arc to some of these characters. But David, one of the most intriguing scenes in this movie was that thing about Reisman being like poor on the gasoline. I really wish we had spent a little bit more, just a, a bit more about Reisman's mean streak. Because if Reisman is like a sadist, like when he's pouring the gasoline, all we need to do is like a close-up shot of him in his face, just like 
eyes like, yeah, burn them all or something like that. Just a little bit delight in the violence he's causing because I think that's there. I think it'd be interesting to show it. Yeah, I got you. All right, David, your assignment is to join me in the Punch Mountain video store. David, this is, of course, an all-action movie video store, and we have sprung for three copies of this movie. So what subsections of action would you stock this film in? This is a little harder than I thought it was going to be. The first one's a slam dunk. This one's going to be military action. You know, it's going to be not necessarily war, not necessarily, you know, it's, it's, it's military action. I don't know why I need to say too much. Uh, the second one is is teasing something I said at the top of the show. I'm going to put this under home for the holidays action. I think this is a good, it's Thanksgiving weekend, it's Christmas weekend. You need something to watch as a family. This fit, this fits the bill really well. Yeah, especially if your family's got some uh, right-wing people in it that are going to be like, uh, complain if, uh, oh, why is uh, that movie Prey Star a Lady? Oh, <laughs> why couldn't, you know, just shitheads will be mollified by the Dirty Dozen. So that's those are going to be my first two copies. My third copy, I don't know, theatrical action, because a lot of this feels like a play. Like, I, I, I kind of want to read the script to it. I feel like the, the screenplay of this reads better than the movie plays, not to knock the movie, but like, it's a very wordy, very written movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Okay, David, now it's the moment everyone's been waiting for the position of the Dirty Dozen on Punch Mound, the definitive ranking of action movies. And just a reminder, top five right now are Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, Prey, and RRR. At the bottom, we have Deadly Prey, Poseidon Adventure, and of course, at the uh, booth of the parking attendant for the parking lot that leads to the shuttle that takes you to Punch Mountain, we have Chappie. David, where would you put this thing on Punch Mountain? I'm of two minds about this. I think, you know, if this movie lives in a vacuum and if we are basing it off of the action, uh, I think it goes pretty low on the mountain. Somewhere in the middle, lower middle, like I'm thinking pitch black Charlie's Angels territory. Mm -hmm. However, it would not surprise me to see it higher up because this movie checks off all the boxes of an action movie. It's got an all-star cast. It's got a bunch of badasses. This is going to be Lee Marvin's first movie on the mountain. This is going to be Charles Bronson's first movie on the mountain. It's a very cool movie. Like it, it's just it's a neat group to hang out with for two and a half hours. So if this ends up a little higher on the mountain, I wouldn't hate it. Yeah, it is tricky because it's very action light in its final action scene. The actual action in this movie, the fighting, you know, it can't hold a candle to like uh, what Jet Li or Jackie Chan could do with a ladder. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, but but at the same time, it's hard to deny the way it builds to that final scene. Even with some dumb scenes, I was excited for it and I was satisfied with it. Mm -hmm. But yes, it is a very action light film. And so it is it is a, a tricky placement, which is why, David, I'm glad that it's not up to folks like me and you. It's up to the mountain. Oh, my goodness, David. Uh, as you can hear, the rocks are starting to fall away from the mountain. The golden letters are appearing, revealing the position of the Dirty Dozen. And it is it is currently number 11. That is below the driver, but above Pitch Black. So the current rankings are Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, Prey, RRR, Hard Target, Dread, The Rock, Cliffhanger, The Driver, The Dirty Dozen, Pitch Black, Charlie's Angels 2019, Pastor 57, Deadly Prey, Poseidon Adventure, and then Chappie. I know I said this is the last time. Every I'm, time. Every week. <laughs> you're, you're mad at us for it. Okay. I mean it. This time, I will. this will be the last time I read the full rankings. It's starting to get out of hand. But pretty good. Pretty good. Who's? I, I would not have predicted it. David, do you hear that uh, horn? Oh, I do. That's the horn calling us to action. Uh, on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
Led by a strong team of civil rights lawyers, the SPLC is a catalyst for racial justice in the South and beyond, working in partnership with communities to dismantle white supremacy, strengthen intersectional movements, and advance the human rights of all people. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Also, for every review we get on iTunes, we'll add $1 to our donation, up to a certain amount, obviously, in case any bots are out there waiting to bankrupt us. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air. For more information on the Southern Poverty Law Center or to donate directly to them, visit splcenter.org. And folks, that'll do it for another episode of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain. Or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week from 1985, directed by Corey Yen and starring Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock, it's Yes, Madam. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.